This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your life coach, helping you get through this crazy thing we call life. Top of the morning to you. Got a lot to get into today. Holy cow. Wonderful guests coming up as well. Plus many, many, many days that we need to celebrate today. Today is White Chocolate Day. White chocolate, white chocolate, you can be my white chocolate. Used to be my gang name, White, white Chocolate. chocolate white because they said I was smooth. Was that the Hershey Gang? Uh-huh. Yeah, the Hershey Gang. Today, uh, 1930, Nestle invented the Milky Bar. It was the result of separating the dark solids from the rich fat of the bean known as cocoa butter. Mm. Are you a white chocolate fan? I love white chocolate. Dark chocolate? I will eat it for sure. Dark chocolate equals burnt chocolate. Is that what it is in your mind? Burnt or dirt. Okay. I love dirt chocolate. White chocolate, I'll put it on anything. It just, I just like it on my cereal in the morning. We will be celebrating White Chocolate Day all day today, as well as today is Hobbit Day. Hmm. September 22nd is the birthday of Bilbo and Frodo Baggins. My favorite Baggins brothers. They have the same birthday? Yeah, apparently. The Baggins had their children always on the 22nd. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, going to be quite the party. Mm-hmm. You got to love them. If you're into The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, you're going to, you know, you're going to want to celebrate today. Take the kids out. Have a little Hobbit day. <laughs> happy, happy Hobbit day. We will uh, also have other days to celebrate, too many today to to celebrate, plus discussions we've got to be having. Uh, What's going on in Charlotte? State of emergency declared after violent clashes last night um, after the shooting of an African-American man prompting the North Carolina's governor to declare a state of emergency. Violent protests, CNN crews were uh, attacked and beat up, uh, the whole thing, tear gas. One person was on life support after being shot Wednesday night by another civilian during the unrest. It was just crazy. So we'll get to an update on that, as well as um, our first guest today will be talking about the hidden agenda of the political mind. Is it possible that it's just pure self-interest? That's how we decide to go politically. It's, it's purely out of your self-interest. What's best for you as an individual? And uh, Jason Whedon will be joining us, the author of the book, The Hidden Agenda of the Political Mind. Sure to be an an interesting discussion because it's, uh, you know, no wonder we end up choosing certain candidates as we do because they might be serving some of our darker interests, some of our dark side, deep, deep down, and and just some of our basic bias that – that we all live with. So we'll get to all of that. But first, of course, let's get to Sadie Nielsen with the headline. Sadie, what's up? 
As protests continue on Wednesday night in Charlotte, North Carolina, in response to the police shooting of Keith Scott on Tuesday, one person was reportedly shot and killed. Gas was deployed by police in response to the protests. Police claim on Tuesday that Scott had a gun in which what prompted the shooting, but Scott's family maintained that he was reading a book when the altercation happened. Despite a rocky few weeks for her campaign, Hillary Clinton is maintaining a national lead over the Republican nominee Donald Trump. According to the latest NBC Wall Street Journal poll released Wednesday, the Democratic nominee leads Trump by seven percentage points, 48 percent to 41 percent among likely voters in a two-way matchup. When the two most popular third-party candidates are added, Clinton's lead falls to six points with Libertarian nominee Gary Johnson and the Green Party's Jill Stein ranking in in a combined 12 percent support. New York bombing suspect Ahmed Rahami reportedly ordered some of his bomb-making components on eBay and had them delivered to a New Jersey business where he worked. Authorities also said that he had tested some of the material in his own family's backyard. Law enforcement officials are still looking into whether his family members were aware of any of this. Mohammed Rahami, the suspect's father, said he had no idea that his son was planning this years after he reported him to the FBI. And finally, yes, this is one that I think you all will be interested in. The ham dog, a mm. combination between a hot dog and hamburger with a bun that is also fitted to fit both of them within <laughs> the sandwich, uh, will soon come to the uh, sorry to the United States from Australia. Um, an Australian man made this by himself. This was his idea. He said, I had the idea on a holiday when I was leaving a bar in Nashville. I grabbed a burger and a hot dog. I was really hungry. Yeah. I was sitting in the car eating them both at the same time, and my wife was looking at me like I was an idiot. You're a pig. Yes. He later took the invention to Australia's Shark Tank television investment show, where it was rejected by the judges. But... <laughs> like, what? No. But, but, now... It is sold at sporting events in Australia for about $6 each. The wow. ham dog. The ham dog. So it's, it's a hamburger and a hot dog, and the bun looks like a mix between a burger bun and a hot dog bun. It doesn't look right. It looks really funny, and Someone actually. shoved a hot dog bun through a hamburger bun. It's like a, yeah. Yeah. The next, the next best thing is that this drone thing will become a ham dog delivery drone. Oh, that's, that's all, all, that's we, all need. we need. The yep. ham dog. The ham dog's connected to the drone dog. Drone hmm. dog's connected to the... Now, if you want both flavors, you can do the whole, like, grind up the sausage or grind up the hot yeah. dog into the hamburger meat and make a patty. And then, You don't want to you know. know what's in the sausage. Oh, I don't know. I Doesn't saw... our sponsor make that meat now? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Casi Carne. One of the great... One of our favorite sponsors. Uh, Casi Carne translated, I believe, to mean almost meat. Almost meat. Casi carne. <sighs> yeah, that ham dog, just the bun itself, it really looks like an arrow was shot through a hamburger bun. Yep. Hmm. But you could see he's made his own proprietary uh, molds or whatever for the yeah the bun because you put the dough in and make that shape. The molds are the most expensive part of making the bun. In fact, there it is. Yeah, there's a drawing to help you understand what part of the... Images show the unique unique shape of the bun, which holds both the burger and the hot dog at the same time. Crazy. Overrated. Just order one of each. Don't need to complicate it. No. Missed it by that much. <laughs> you were so close. So, ah, uh, Charlotte, it's falling apart. On a I couple mean, it makes blocks. sense. You need, I mean, they still have not figured out this... Police shooting thing. 
What is the deal? I mean, I know every case is individual, but the African-American community are tired of the target being the target. Hmm. And apparently it doesn't even matter if it's a if it's a black cop shooting a black man. No, it's it's still chaos and it's a problem. And I don't know. I mean, that you hear like Dallas. Yeah. Uh, when they there was the, the shooting that happened in Dallas and what you heard was that police department had actually a good relationship with the community because of some. Uh, some outreach and some training and things that were done, so like sensitivity type training. To not even that, it's more just the the cops being able to um, exercise better judgment in a crisis, right? And being able to not necessarily go straight to the gun. Maybe yeah. there's a different option. You can talk someone down, that kind of thing. When, when you have like even in Tulsa this week, where there was another mm-hmm. shooting, and the and the some of the people there that were speaking to the media says we'd like to be treated like that terrorist in New York. He's alive. He, he's, he dropped several bombs in several states. But he's alive. But he's alive. Well, but that's – they probably would appreciate if he wasn't. Uh, they're not saying it's a good thing that he's right. alive or a bad thing. They're simply saying that the, he had a confrontation with police. Yeah. Bullets were fired. That guy's alive. Yeah. <sighs> There's got to be a better choice than either try to tase you, mm-hmm. which doesn't work all the time. No. Taze it. Or shoot you. There's got to be... And then you have the situation where a cop is, is approaching a situation. And, you know, I, I've often thought, why don't they just try to shoot him in the shoulder? Right. No. But, but yeah. they're not worried about, let's... They're, they're trying to stop a situation. And if it progresses to a point where, you know, violence and, and, and a gun is necessary, they're taught to do it one way yeah. and not to kind of mess around with trying to be, you know... Shoot a leg you or shoot an yeah. arm. You You're have not to put. The lone you have to stop ranger. that person and protect your life too. But the situations we're seeing is the, are the cops really in danger? I don't know. Well, and now to complicate it even more, there's now the cops are saying in the situation in Charlotte, the person had a gun. They are the family saying he, he had, had a book. book. They're saying he had a gun. Plus, as well, as well, I guess there were some drugs found in the car. Mm-hmm. They're not saying. That the guy had them in his system, but there were drugs in the car, PCP, I believe. And mm-hmm. so, but the, the deal is they can't just show the tapes. If they could show the tapes or show enough people the tapes that there was a gun involved, I wonder if that might calm down some of the people of Charlotte. In Tulsa, we've seen helicopter video and dash cam video. Right. Almost immediately. Immediately out there. In Charlotte, they haven't because there's a law that's been passed. That I I can't I don't know if it's a time period or if it has to be released by the court or how right. that law works. There's a court issue, but now. the video is hasn't not been released. Now critics of this are saying, well, the law doesn't go into effect until October first. Oh, hmm. So the 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 police department is erring on the side that a law has been passed. Yeah, but so they're 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 kind of in this this area where the law has been passed, but it isn't in effect. So do, is it? in effect with this situation or can we still operate under the old laws so look the police are waiting for some sort of ruling i think well it seems like the government would be if we're calling a state of emergency Mm -hmm. it seems like a politician would step in and say show the video show the video lawsuits aside show the video right so the people won't but the, the video again won't change many 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 years 
of abuse no. on the black and African American community. So, and that's what a lot of this emotion is. is not that, this is the it. incident, but it's all these years of, of right. problems that they're just kind of bubbling to the surface. But it got crazy last night to the point that I mean, once once the journalists are being attacked, yes, it's really going to hit the news. And so that was going on. Plus, the, another man, the man being shot and killed last night. It's um, uh, again, we have the technology to get to the moon. Do we not have the technology to have some other form of intervention that's not lethal, but is they have disabling? Them. But it's like like beanbag guns yeah. and things of that nature. But they're another weapon that you'd have, say, in the trunk of your car. And right. if you're in a situation where something needs to happen right now, you can't go. Hold on. But it I seems need to like, get the beanbag gun. like with the women, the woman in Tulsa that shot uh, that man, one was actually using a taser mm-hmm. and one used her gun. So they weren't on the same page. There wasn't communication. So I guess some of this could also go to training. Yeah. What we need is just the pause button. If every cop could just carry a remote control and hit pause and it stops everything except the cop. Then we can go check if there's a gun, yeah. put some handcuffs on the guy. Right. Then unpause. <sighs> I don't get it. I mean, if Harry Potter can have an invisibility cloak, why can't we have some method? There is. I guarantee there's solutions. But we haven't. We, we're not creating a dialogue. We're creating no. People are yelling at each other, yeah. Oh, man. And it, today I think our discussion about, uh, you know, our hidden – agendas, our hidden self-interest may be a great discussion to start to open that up. Any other news we need to worry about? Donald Trump and Hillary, are they still running? They are. They both commented on this yesterday. Yeah, maybe uh, that was That was a lot of the media that ran, or the, the, the press that ran yesterday was kind of the two candidates responding to these two shootings. Here's Donald Trump on the shooting in Tulsa. Great people, you always have problems. You have somebody in there that either makes a mistake, that's bad, or that chokes. I must tell you, I watched the shooting in particular in Tulsa. It, to me, it looked like he did everything you're supposed to do. And uh, this young officer, I don't know what she was thinking. I don't know what she was thinking. But I'm very, very troubled by that. By the way, the police are troubled by it too. Did she get scared? Did, was she choking? What happened? But maybe people like that, people that choke, people that do that, maybe they can't be doing what they're doing. Okay? They can't be doing mm. what they're doing. Uh, so Trump comes right out basically inferring that it was the officer choking, blowing it. And, um, you know, people were mad a few years ago when uh, President Obama jumped in on some of these shootings. and. Yep. Uh, do you remember one of the boys that was shot in Florida? I believe it was President Obama said, this could have been my son. Yeah. And everyone's like, stay out of it. You don't mm-hmm. know what's going on. Don't inject yourself. But here's Donald injecting himself into something he doesn't quite know what was going on. He did see the video, though. Yes. Just like it was millions, on TV. Yeah. millions of other. Hillary Clinton has her view of it. There is still much we don't know about what happened in both incidents. But we do know that we have two more names to add to a list of African-Americans killed by police officers in these encounters. It's unbearable, and it needs to become intolerable. I've spoken to many police chiefs and other law enforcement leaders who are as deeply concerned as I am 
and deeply committed, as I am, to reform. Why? Because they know it is essential for the safety of our communities and our officers. We are safer when communities respect the police and police respect communities. So there's a more reserved uh, approach, Hillary Clinton which is this is the big discussion is you don't just jump in and immediately jump into the dialogue around the shootings. Hillary was you know trying to say there's many things we don't quite know about the shootings yet. It's just kind of the slow, steady hand. Again, I guess just another example of how they would lead, how they would govern. Trump would definitely make a comment and would definitely eventually make it tweeting probably all night from. No, he said when he's in when he's the president, he's not going to be on Twitter. Right. That's what he said. Yeah, sure. And so uh, anyway, it's tough. It's a tough situation. It's what we talk about on the show. We talk about what's going on in these in the inner cities and kind of the, the history of uh, of mistreatment between the communities the and the law enforcement community, the black community, the disparity in the implementation of laws uh, where black youth are much more you know inclined to get arrested for things that maybe white youth might not so it's happening we got to get the discussion going we'll take a break when we come back we'll be talking about the hidden agenda of the political mind the power of our own self-interest in how we see politics stick with us this is the matt townsend show we'll be right back Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We all have the tendency to believe in things that are self-serving, but do we do it with our political views as well? In the book, The Hidden Agenda of the Political Mind, Jason Whedon explores how self-interest shapes our political opinions and why we won't admit it. Jason Whedon is a senior researcher with the Pennsylvania Laboratory for Experimental Evolutionary Psychology, PLEEP, they call it. He's also a lawyer in Washington, D.C., and uh, received his Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. So, Jay, I guess we could call you Dr. Jason Whedon. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, great to be with you. Yeah, Jason's fine. Jason, I, I really uh, like this book. And, in fact, we were talking earlier about uh, the, the shootings in Charlotte and Tulsa and how it, last night in Charlotte it created um, more chaos in the streets, more shooting, more rioting. It's We are, no matter how we want to portray it, humans are, are biased, right? We have, we have our self-interest. We have a bias. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, that's the main perspective that we're taking is saying very generally people tend to take self-interested views. But we also we have these minds that are built to deny that we ourselves are self-interested. So, you know, when it, comes to, when it comes to politics, we'll say, hey, my political views are just the way they are because I think that's what's good for everybody or that's what's consistent with my principles or whatever. You know, human minds are set up where people really believe those kinds of stories about themselves, even though they're not necessarily accurate stories. Why do we want to pretend like we're not biased and we're doing it for the greater good? Well, I mean, the funny answer is it's self-interest. Yeah, so, there you, you know, go again. You know, you can think about, think about business corporations. You know, business corporations are trying to maximize shareholder value. They're trying to maximize the economic position of their shareholders. And so, you know, a big bank might go sponsor some regional arts fair. 
And they're doing that because they get publicity from the fair, they get new subscribers from the fair. But you go ask their corporate office, you say, you know, why are you guys sponsoring this art festival? And they're not going to say, well, because we're trying to make money. <laughs> you know, they're, they're going to say, well, look, we're just interested in the welfare of the community. We're interested in what's best for everybody, and especially the children. You know, <laughs> we're, we're really concerned about the children. And, you know, big organizations do that. Presidential administrations do that as well. You know, presidential administrations are thinking about their voters and thinking about their donors and thinking about interest groups when they come up with policies. But you ask them, why is the administration favoring this policy? And they'll say, oh, well, you know, because it's what's best for everybody or it's what's, you know, best. It's what's consistent with American values. They do that because that's the effective sales pitch. If you want people to agree with you, you don't walk up to them and say, hey, I'm being selfish and you should agree with me and advance my interests. You say, hey, I'm just looking out for everybody. I'm a good guy. And so, you know, human beings do that as well. And it's and the real issue, it's built into the architecture of our minds. Right. So this isn't something this isn't something where people are lying to you. They really believe these stories, even though, you know, when you go to the data you analyze the patterns of who believes what in politics, and what you find is, no, you know, really, on average, people tend to have policy views that fit their own interests. And it's – your book, uh, I think, por- book cover portrays it beautifully with different colored ribbons. We've, we've seen over the last 15 or 20 years, it's, it's all about ribbons. You've got the, you know, like the pink <laughs> ribbon for breast care awareness, the yellow ribbon, right. the rainbow ribbon. I mean, you've got – a ribbon for everybody. And so really what it is, is we all are just a bunch of self-interests, and then we pretend like we are not biased, and then we vote politically based on who will serve our self-interest the best. Yeah, and what we're, you know, part of what we're trying to get across with the idea of the ribbons is, you know, a lot of talks about politics can become really abstract. It can be about these big abstract notions, ideologies and values and principles and party identification. Mainly what we're trying to do is remind everybody that there's a reality here that's about concrete issues that affect real people's lives. So, you know, you can take tax and spend issues where you engage in income transfers, and that affects people's real lives on both sides, the people being taxed and the people receiving benefits. Or you can take issues of discrimination and meritocracy, where you have these rules that hold some kinds of people back but give advantages to other kinds of people, and that affects people's real lives. Or even issues like moralizing casual sex or restricting access to abortion or birth control. There's a concrete core to that, where people with different kinds of sexual lifestyles are affected differently. So we're making the point that, you know, you, you look at these things issue by issue, and that's where you really see these pretty clear patterns where people tend, on average, to respond to how these issues affect themselves. Does it, does it eventually um, – I guess it can change, right? Because it seems like many are saying uh, today that the Republican Party doesn't necessarily look like what it used to look like. And so yeah. I wonder if the self-interest then starts to morph a little bit, which then forces you out of a party. Yeah, I think, you know, look, parties are coalitions of lots of different interest groups and people who care about lots of different kinds of issues. And these are coalitions. So you look at the Republican Party and there's some people who really care about tax and spend issues, some people who really care about immigration, some people who really care about abortion. What's clear over history is that these coalitions change. You know, these coalitions are morphing all the time. This little group that used to be in this party is now getting pushed over here. And what you're seeing with the Trump presidency is, you know, obviously issues of immigration and race are really getting pushed forward. And some of the traditional Republican issues, the tax and spend issues or abortion, 
these are getting pushed back. And so what you're seeing is the demographic group that tends to be pretty anti-immigrant and have pretty conservative racial views, you're seeing that demographic group really outperforming where it's performed before. So this is a coalitional shift. You get, you know, mainly it's sort of non-college educated white men are really heading into the Republican Party in numbers we haven't seen before. Well, that's, you know, in our book we talk about that's exactly the constituency that has for a long time held pretty strongly negative views about immigration and, you know, pretty conservative views about race. And those are the people Trump is attracting. But the nature of these coalitions is you move in one group and you're always simultaneously pushing out another group. Hmm. So the, the people who are tend to be, you know, the demographic profile of people who are, tend to be pretty liberal in immigration, that's kind of a coalition of immigrants, racial minorities, and then highly educated people. These people tend to be pro-immigration. Well, and we're seeing, you know, those people are sort of getting pushed now more towards Hillary Clinton because this issue of immigration has really been pushed to the front of this election. Right. Where do, where do these personal interests come from? Is this just how we've been socialized? Uh, is it, I guess, what, how we're experiencing the world? How do we pick up our own personal self-interest? Yeah, you know, I think, look, there's a core to it that I think is relatively universal and, and appears pretty much everywhere, which is, you know, people want more resources rather than less resources. Right. People want to be in an, in, in an advantaged social position rather than a disadvantaged social position. And you also get these fights over sexual lifestyles. There are some people who they have a more freewheeling sexual lifestyle and they want the rules to favor that. But you have other people who have very conservative traditional family lifestyles. They want the rules to favor that. So those themes have been with us pretty much, you know, it's, it's <laughs> since the dawn of time. You know, look, here's an example. We, no one will be surprised by this. We find that people who are wealthier and who have wealthier social networks, wealthier friends and families, they tend to be more opposed to income redistribution. People who are poor and have poor families and poor social networks, they tend to be more in favor of income redistribution. Nobody's going to be surprised by that. <laughs> but that's true now. It was true in America 30 years ago. It was true in America 60 years ago from the data we've looked at. We looked at a giant international database. You know, it turns out that's true around the world. Globally. Around the world, wealthier yeah. people will say, you know, I'm not so sure I like this income redistribution thing. And poor people will say, hey, that sounds like a great idea. So there are some elements of this that are really widespread and pretty universal. But then you get other elements that change over time. The coalitions of the parties change over time. The self-interest of legislators changes over time. You know, it used to be in the self-interest of a legislator seeking, uh, seeking re-election. They wanted to please the higher-ups in their parties. They wanted, they wanted uh, committee appointments. They wanted uh, earmarks for their district. They wanted the party's money to run for re-election. Well, those kinds of incentives within Congress have changed to where now what they're really worried about is primary fights from the hardcore of the base of their party. Mm. And so the, the personal incentives for legislators can change over time. It doesn't mean that self-interest used to matter, now it doesn't, or it matters now and it didn't used to. But, the, but what self-interest can lead to changes over time. Are there, are there topics that are universal to all humans? Um, I almost think, I guess, just of the environment and environmental issues. Uh, are there? Because uh, it seems like we would be able to unite around in, the environment, um, yeah, and actually, yet it still divides us. 
Yeah, that's actually, we have, uh, you know, look, we don't think self-interest explains everything, and we don't think self-interest is equally potent in every political issue. And we actually flagged at the end of the book a couple of issues where we said, you know, we're just not sure self-interest is a big deal here. And one of the big ones we talk about is the environment, because the environment seems like one where you wouldn't, you wouldn't find a lot of people disagreeing. But somehow that's got caught up in the political polarization. So you see these big fights over the environment. But, Mm. uh, you know, I I don't think self-interest does a great job explaining that one. I think self-interest does a better job explaining, you know, fights over income redistribution and fights over discrimination and fights over sexual lifestyles. I mean, these are these core human Mm -hmm. things that have for a long time where people have conflicting interests and their politics tend to reflect the fact that they have conflicting interests there. Yeah, and I mean, you can almost see in a lot of the social issues that they're very much or seem to be delineated by, you know, religious views and yep. conservatism like holding back instead of liberalism of opening up, letting go. Yeah, you know, what we uh we we talk a lot about religion because it's a big deal, and it's a bigger deal in politics in America than it's ever been. These 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 splits between people who go to church a lot and people who don't, between secular people and Christians, these have become really central political divisions. And what we look at in the book is how that connects to people's real lives. You know, you go look at young people who are raised religious, and it turns out, you know, three quarters of them have stopped going to church by mm-hmm. the time they're in their early twenties. And then you look at, okay, who are the ones who really stopped going to church and who are the ones who kept going? And what you find is it connects up to their real lives. So the kids who start partying and hooking up, you know, the people who have what we call freewheeling sexual lifestyles, those people really stop going to church even when they're raised religious. But the people with the more traditional lifestyles who are raised religious, well, they'll keep going with it. And so when you see the religious correlates in public opinion, what does it relate to? Well, it relates to these sexual issues, these issues about fertility and birth control and, you know, abortion and premarital sex and pornography. Well, this is relating to how people are really living their lives. Some people live lives that are very traditional, very marriage focused. They have a lot of kids. They're really worried about the stability of their families. And these things are a tangible threat to them. Sort of freewheeling sexual lives are a tangible threat to their marriages and how they're raising their children. But, you know, other people who, uh, you know, who are living these more freewheeling lifestyles really don't want a bunch of restrictions on them. So the re- even the religious stuff, you know, it can look yeah. like it's symbolic or abstract, but there's a real – there's a reality there that connects to how people are living their lives. So part of the issue with self-interest, I guess, is the fact that it's, it's lived interest. It's what's actually happening in our lives. It's not just principle-based. It's real-life issues. This is how, yeah, right. this is how it's happening. And that's, and that's sort of the point of, of, of why we make this distinction between how self-interest shapes our opinions and why we won't admit it. Mm. Yeah. We, we use these principles to sell ourselves, but it's really driving us to these real fundamental interests. That's great. Uh, interesting insights. We'll take a break. More with Jason Whedon and his book, The Hidden Agenda of the Political Mind, How Self-Interest Shapes Our Opinions and Why We Won't Admit It. More up next. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us is uh, Jason Whedon. He's the co-author with Robert Kurtzban of the book The Hidden Agenda of the Political Mind, How Self-Interest Shapes Our Opinions and Why We Won't Admit It. 
apparently when it comes to how you uh, act politically, it's all it's driven by your self-interest. It's driven by your day-to-day life and your desire, it sounds like, to protect that life or lifestyle. Um, and then we all pretend like, no, it's not driven by that. It's Instead, it's driven by my deep inner goodness and desire to help all of humanity. I hope I'm getting it right here, Jason. Is that, uh, is that an okay, you know, synopsis? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and I, we're just trying to remind everybody there's a reality here to these issues. You know, I think what makes it really interesting is when you start getting into the details. So yeah. in talking about politics, you know, we hear a lot about these demographic features, race and gender and education, religion, income, and so on. What we provide is a kind of roadmap for how these demographic features fit onto different kinds of issues. So, you know, when you're thinking about immigration, well, that's mostly about race and ethnicity and education. On the conservative side, it tends to be native-born whites with less education. On the liberal side, it's this coalition of immigrants and highly educated natives. Or when you're thinking about in- income redistribution, now it's now you really need to be thinking about income and race. It's, it's you know, largely yeah. high-income whites on the conservative side and minorities and low-income whites on the liberal side. And then when you're thinking about abortion and birth control, well, now you need a different set of demographics to think about. Now it doesn't have much to do with race or income, but it's really mostly about religion and people's own sexual and family lifestyles. So, you know, when you trace through these things issue by issue, you really see where these demographic interests come in. Is it – okay, that's a fascinating idea. So is it um, – when people are frustrated and worried about immigration, a lot of others will throw the label on them that they're just racist – But they also might just have a hidden agenda, which is, I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to have more people breaking down my fence uh, in my yard. And because that's what happened with that one Hispanic man that drove over my lawn two years ago. So it's really very personal. It may not even, I guess, per se be racist, except it is self-serving. Yeah, well, it's a complicated point. I mean, first of all, I'd say... I, you know, I don't even think some of these interests are all that hidden. I mean, people talk it's overt. about yeah. people, to, people talk about job losses, and that's and and there's some truth to that. Some people in the economy, especially people who are less educated, are relatively worse off when you allow in a lot of low uh, low education immigrants. But it's also, you know, the benefits of immigration mostly come to people who buy lots of goods, and poor people mm. spend more of their money on things like housing and not on goods and services that are made cheaper by immigration. So, yeah, there are real interests. But then the really deep point is sometimes racism is in your interests. And it's that is, yeah. Thought, you know, but, but, you know, the way we think about it is, look, the big competition here, the big competition of social status is, are you going to use these group-based categories, race and gender and religion and sexual orientation, to affect how people, you know, get opportunities and get social advantages? Or are we going to use this education and test-based meritocracy where it's really just, you know, well, the smartest people, they should get the best jobs and they should get preferentially mm. admitted to colleges and get these advantages. So here's the, the point we make is you shouldn't be surprised when people who don't do great under this test-based, education-based meritocracy but who would do really well if we, you know, gave advantages to white Christian men. When you see those people saying, hey, yeah, we, we, we're, you know, racial discrimination is not a terrible thing. You shouldn't be surprised by that. Mm-hmm. Not everybody wins under meritocracy. And, and the people who don't win out under meritocracy, we find when we go look at public opinion data, the people who don't do great 
under test-based, education-based meritocracy, those people really tend to adopt political attitudes that say people in my groups ought to get a leg up and people who are not in my groups ought to be held back. Hmm. And I guess – and the bigger point, too, you're making is in the end, we all pretend like we're not acting out of bias or self-interest. We're pretending like it's just for the goodness of the whole. Well, because that's what works best in public arguments. Mm -hmm. What works best in public arguments is, you you, you know, if you're negotiating with somebody, you don't walk to them and say, hey, will (laughs) you be a sucker and agree with what's good for me and terrible for you? That's not what you say. What you say is, oh, I've got this idea that it's a win-win, everybody wins, it's, you know, you're, you're... you're, you're, everybody does better. I'm just, you know, I'm not looking out for myself. I'm just trying to do what's best for everybody here. That's the best sales pitch. And so that's, that's, you know, the human mind is set up in a way where you will automatically, without blinking an eye, you will adopt those stories. You will believe those stories about yourself. Mm-hmm. Is, is there you a know, way to change? Looking, oh, go ahead. Yeah, but then you're looking at your political opponents you know, people who are not on your side, and now you see it immediately. Oh, look at all that self-interest. Well, okay. Yeah. So self-serving. Yeah, and you, you play that game. Is, um, is there a way to change your self-interest? Is there a way that we could look at ourselves and not, I guess, I guess it's so counter human nature, isn't it, to, to not protect your interest? Yeah, I think, I think it is. But also, I mean, the, look, the bigger point I'd make is self-interest by itself is not the problem, right? So I I was talking to you earlier about you go look everywhere around the world and across American history and you'll find wealthier people tend not to like income redistribution and poor people tend to like it. But that doesn't shut down the political system at all times and places, right? You can have political systems that operate perfectly well where people negotiate and compromise and things actually get done. But it's a negotiation between self-interested parties and that's just fine. We're in a particular period in American history where the institutions surrounding our government have morphed in a way that makes those kinds of self-interested negotiations very, very difficult, especially, mm-hmm. at, the, especially at the congressional level. So, I, you know, I don't even know that the answer is, well, let's have people be less self-interested. I mean, right. it's that, I, like you said, it's just that's so deep in human nature that it's, 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 you know, look, we all know what happens when you ask your citizenry not to be self-interested. They just figure out how to be self-interested in a different way. <laughs> yeah, hide I it mean, better. Look at the history of communism. I mean, it, it's not pretty. But these institutional structures can make self-interested negotiations more and less difficult. And we're in a particular time period right now where it's very difficult for legislators to get things done because their own interest in getting reelected is served more by playing to their party base rather than getting things done for their constituents. Well, and so much of their money and their backing is, are by these entities, these associations that are sure. providing the money and the resources, and they're all self-interested. Yeah, well, and then also we, we have such strongly polarized parties now that when you, when you have primary elections and you're just having the real hardcore of your base turnout, yeah. a very small turnout primary elections, it's very difficult – to stray from your party line on anything. Yeah, that's right. You'll just you'll get hammered in your primary. You need the the Republicans need the guns and the social, uh, religious, social conservative issues to turn out their base, and the Democrats need the opposite. So, oh, interesting. Yep. So we stay entrenched, and it, it, it that in and of itself, those systems keep us even more more fighting for self interest. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you know look, uh, let's we can think about business corporations. You know, I mentioned those earlier. Everybody understands business corporations are self-interested entities. They look out for the economic interests of their shareholders. But businesses do deals with each other all the time. They negotiate. They enter into contracts. They buy goods and services from each other. They do joint ventures. They merge. Self-interest doesn't stop people from getting stuff done. If you're looking for, you know, why, why isn't the country getting stuff done, I, I would say, well, it's not because of self-interest. It's because of the, how the incentives work for, you know, for in these particular systems hmm. with these particular legislators. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting as you watch Donald Trump and Hillary, it's almost like Donald – it's like they both know exactly what you're saying. Donald more overtly <laughs> – tries to just play on self-interest, it seems like, and, you know, just say things you don't normally say in order to draw people in by their self-interest versus Hillary, who's probably doing the exact same thing, but kind of clouds a little bit more and and pretends like she's not doing that. Sure. I mean, I think a good politician will play to the voters that they need, but then will tell a story about I'm just I'm just looking out for the country or I'm looking yeah, out for our yeah. values. And and I, I agree with you, though. Uh, Donald Trump's rhetoric, it does seem like it's is a more, word is often more blatantly self-interested. You know? <laughs> We're going to keep these people out because we want you to keep your job. Yeah. Whereas Hillary Clinton is more likely to say something like, we're stronger together, everyone's better off when we, when we have a more diverse, inclusive society. But I guess in the end, she's speaking to that self-interested group that doesn't want Exactly. That to, to kick people out or whatever. I mean, it's I, I guess where do we go f- looking forward as, as you look at the election? What do you hope that your book brings to the, the view of politics in general? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we want so much to change the world with this. What we're really trying to do is make the, the exercise of watching these political contests more interesting to allow you to be more knowledgeable. So when people start talking about, you know, low education white men, you'll know, you'll know oh, okay, I know the issue profiles of that group because I, I can see where their interests are. Right. They talk about, you know, college educated women. Yes, I know what we're talking about. Or Hispanics or uh, African Americans. You'll, you'll know what issues drive those groups and why they're important to these parties. Love it. Well, I appreciate it, Jason. I think you've done great work. It's ins- it's interesting, too, to just think how much we pretend, even though it's so overt and out there. Uh, well done on the book, The Hidden Agenda of the Political Mind, How Self-Interest Shapes Our Opinions and Why We Won't Admit It. Jason Whedon, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Ah, Interesting discussion, huh? And think about it right now, you. How, how do your self-interest drive your decision-making? When you think of voting for Hillary or not, where does your self-interest, your biases uh, kick in there? And are you willing to admit them? Or are you just, you know, voting to change the world, save everybody? Might be powerful if we all just spoke our self-interest. Anyway, a little food for thought, helping you uh, see the good in the world and maybe see where we can make it better. We'll take a break. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, we do. We operate by bias. We operate by self-interest. And uh, Terry found a news story that um, 
I couldn't agree more with, just purely out of self-interest. Matt, you and I yeah. have uh, some commutes that are kind of long. A long commute. You, you, you tend to seem more of an issue than I do. I, I do kind of enjoy the trip. But do you? I do. I rather enjoy driving and what is your problem? listening to podcasts and all that stuff. But a European court has ruled that time spent traveling to and from work should count as actual work. Yes. With companies paying employees for their time accordingly. The judgment applies to workers with fixed offices, such as many uh, electricians, care workers, and sales reps. It will affect millions of public and private sector employees across the European Union. <laughs> so not here. Europe. In Europe. Europe seems to be leading always. They are. They're leading. I think because a lot of what I do in my car is show prep. Right. I listen to all of the articles of every guest plus every news. So we either need self-driving cars quickly Mm -hmm. or we need to pass some legislation here in Utah. So we'll see what happens, okay, but we'll in the European Union, a court has passed a law. You get okay. paid for like travel it. time. I like, and apparently the choir likes it. Also, the uh, spiciest tortilla chip in the world is sold one chip per package. So there's one bag, one chip. They use, it's called the Carolina Reaper Madness Chip. <laughs> it is uh, the deadliest creation of the company that makes it. It's literally the hottest chip in the world, and only one chip comes per package, and the cap- package comes in a coffin-shaped box, of course. <laughs> It uh, gets this kick from the Carolina Reaper, Pe- Reaper Pepper, which the Guinness Book of World Records holds as the hottest chili pepper on the planet. Man. So you get a. F- so bad? Uh-huh. <laughs> it's more tingly than hot. <laughs> it's more tingly than hot. The Carolina Pepper Chip sells for $4.99, limited edition offering. One chip, One chip. $4.99. When you open that bag and you're like, what? One chip? You You make it like. Like contact burns just from holding it, being as hot and you know the yeah. oil from the pepper and everything. Honey, will so, you get the pliers and put that chip in my mouth? <laughs> but yeah, it's in a foil package. You just open it up and pull your chip out. And you're ready to go. Holy cow! And your face melts off. That's crazy. People you, are nuts. I don't know if you can enjoy it. No, you're in no. pain. Yeah, you're in the emergency room, having aspirated. You're, you're, you're trying acid. to chug milk or something to try <gasps> to kill the pain, but not well. good. Well, that's uh, that's just something out there for you. Again, trying to give you all the information you need to live healthier lives. We'll be back a whole other hour, two more actually. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at one eight five five Chat BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Happy days are here again. Welcome to the program. And by the way, happy ice cream cone day. You gotta love ice cream yeah, cones. Those could have been people. Those could have been guests at her wedding. They were cones. They were cones. Today's the day we celebrate uh, ice cream cones. It was first served at the St. Louis World's Fair by Ernest Hamwi, a Syrian concessionaire in 1904. A Syrian, probably a Syrian refugee. Come on. And he invented the ice cream cone. His waffle booth was next to an ice cream vendor who ran short on dishes. 
So Homley rolled a waffle cone to contain ice cream, and the cone was born. How cool is that? Ah, pretty awesome. So we're celebrating, of course, Ice Cream Cone Day along with Elephant Appreciation Day. It's Elephant. Did you ever play Elephant? No, you know what? No. My mom said it, I would take an eye out if I played Elephant. With little butterflies? Yeah. Elephant butterflies flying out of the snout of the elephant. Hmm. Elephant. It's all fun and games until you lose an eye playing Elephant. Did you have to walk around? Were you one of those kids that walked around wearing oven mitts on your hands at exactly. all times? Exactly. And I sat on plastic uh, encased couches. You had uh, bubble wrap mm-hmm. Covers. comforters? Mm-hmm. We just wanted to keep it clean. Elephants are uh, cer- certainly a worthy animal to appreciate. They're the largest mammals in the world. And sadly, many of the species of elephants face a threat of extinction. Plus, there's Dumbo with the big ears. Why don't we have more of those? I tell you. What's happening to this world? Uh, today we'll be speaking about the power of meeting a stranger you never know when you're talking, meeting, connecting to a stranger um, how they could transform your life for good, I guess. We, we always fear that, right? Uh, or for evil. So think about it. We'll be uh, speaking with Keo Stark about that. And um, it's just an interesting discussion. Her new book, When Strangers Meet, How People You Don't Know Can Transform You. A uh, lot to celebrate today and, and some uh, tragic uh, news just coming out of Charlotte with a person dying last night because of the protests over the, the shooting of an uh, what they're saying was an unarmed black man. Uh, more uh, news will be coming out on that this morning. They're having a news conference. But first, uh, before we get to any of this, let's get to Sadie Nielsen with the headlines. Sadie, what's going on around the rest of the country? Yahoo Incorporated is preparing to disclose a massive data breach on its, of its main surface, Recode reported, just as Verizon Communications Incorporated prepares to take over the alien internet company's core assets. The break-in was widespread and serious and is expected to be disclosed this week, the tech news website said, citing several anonymous sources close to the situation as sane. Yahoo didn't respond to phone or emailed requests for comment outside of normal business hours. By Wednesday night, the situation in Charlotte has escalated to the point that it could no longer be handled by the local police and state troopers alone. Considering the violence, damage, and safety concerns, North Carolina's governor has declared a state of emergency. He's calling in the National Guard via the Associated Press. Whether the situation in Charlotte will have a different outcome is yet to be determined. Kmart is closing another 64 stores and firing thousands of employees in the United States as the retailer continues to struggle with the declining sales. The stores will begin liquidation sales on September 22nd and will close down by mid-December, a person familiar with the matter said late Monday. And finally, Seth Friedland, a speechwriter for Nike, was baffled when a hotel honored his request to put pictures of Jeff Goldblum in his hotel room. When I made my reservation at the Huntley, I was asked if there was anything else they could do to make my stay more comfortable. I thought about it and thought, what might delight the girlfriend and asked if they might be able to place a few framed photos of Jess Goldblum in the room. Friedland said he was unsure if the request would be honored, but it turns out he arrived and three different photos of, Glo- of Goldblum were at the hotel. Wow. 
So it just, just goes. Got- to, it goes to show. Whatever you really want at a hotel, they will do it for just you. Just ask for it. Just ask for it. Oh ask and you shall receive. Jeff Goldblum pictures. Oh boy, you gotta really want Jeff Goldblum pictures. Yeah, you really do. That's a big ask. Hmm. Yep. Well, well done, Sadie. Appreciate it. Holy cow! Yeah, what would I ask for? That's the thing, folks. Just ask. That's. I'm too embarrassed to even ask for what I really want. Like if I if they didn't finish my meal or like if they didn't put something on my hamburger that I wanted, I'm pretty much okay saying, uh, I'll just eat it without the hamburger bun. Jeff if- Goldblum though, I think that's something that everybody would want in their hotel room. Everybody meaning Everybody, literally everybody, meaning every living person on the planet. So you're saying all humans would want a Jeff Goldblum? Not just humans. All intelligent live life from other planets would want Jeff Goldblum. I think I'd rather have. Wasn't he married to Lara Dern or was that her name? He was in a movie with her. I thought they were actually married. Oh, I have no idea. I'd rather have Lara's picture. And I don't even know her last name. Than Jeff, Jeff's. Dern. Je- Laura, Laura Dern. Dern. She's great. Yeah. So I think you're off thinking that everybody would want a Goldblum picture. I mean, I don't want to beat you up on that, but. Great point. Hey, Rochester man uh, tries to rob a coffee shop by a police station. This is not very smart. Of all the coffee shops. Yeah. You, you can, could possibly have. Right. And if the coffee shop had any donuts, you know there's going to be some cops standing there. A man accused of trying to rob the coffee shop in Henrietta, New York, was apprehended. By the way, the coffee shop is 200 feet from the sheriff's substation. He wins the prize. You won! You did it! You did it! I knew you would! What prize would that be? The fastest arrest. The fastest arrest in America. That's one of the hardest... Awards to win. Was well, he going for that? I highly doubt it. Except for the people arrested actually in the lobby of the police department yeah. doing something wrong. Right. Because that happens occasionally. But too. I think you have a better chance of being arrested at a coffee shop near a police precinct okay. than even in their waiting room. Because maybe they don't want to be in the office. Right. They're next door. They're out getting some caffeine and some donuts, let's say. You, yeah. Hmm. Keith... Cintron, 53, of Rochester, is accused of um, leaning into the store through the drive through window, grabbing an employee by the shirt and demanding cash. Bada boom, bada bing. We happen to have uh, audio and video. It's video because we show video on, on the radio show. Um, it's video of the actual arrest known now as the fastest arrest in history. Now it's time for the fastest arrest in history. Johnson, we have a robbery at Joe's. The coffee joint next door? I'll be right there. Freeze! You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say may be used against you in a court of law. I'll take a mocha latte to go. Thank you. That was fast. Wow. How did he know he had the right person? I I think he just went up to somebody random and said... You're under arrest. Well, yeah. It's the guy that was holding the other guy's chest and shirt, you know? And. Or maybe all the employees just pointed. That guy. It only took him like five steps. That's what I find amazing. Mm. It's almost like they had adjoining doors. Uh huh. Yeah. 
It is. It's one door <laughs> right into the coffee shop. Anyway, congratulations to the officers at Henrietta in Henrietta. Or that's, you know, it's not just a sheriff substation. It's now an award-winning sheriff substation. Fastest arrest ever. Ever. In history. By the way, never have we had a news story where they actually had, um, I think it was a trumpet. A trumpet intro. That was interesting, yeah. yeah. And a song. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah. Just Good art- stuff. artistic. What's fun Public is, relations yeah, because we've got we've got reporters everywhere, and so these reporters, some just are a little more eclectic than others. Huh. So really, just like to let their hair down. Um, how about? Uh, well, I don't know. Do you do you ever just feel like you're you're a dog, maybe? Let's say, okay, and I feel love. <laughs> what? It's the theme song from Benji. Oh, okay. A dog was found 962 miles from his home. That's the distance one Vermont woman had to travel to get her lost dog back. Kim Spears shared her story on the Lost and Found Animals of Vermont Facebook page. And her dog, is it Malachi or Malaki, was stolen from her home. Cute dog. Listen to that. This is the theme song to to Benji. Do you want to know an interesting fact about this song? Yes. If you look at the description of this song, music, Yule Box, lyrics, Betty Box, 1974 Academy Award nominee for Best Song. Really? Do you know the boxes? No, I think I knew their son, Juke. Or Drop. So this is my father's uncle and aunt. Not the singer, but what? the the music and lyrics, the people that did the music and lyrics. So your father's, so it would be your great uncle and, and great aunt, aunt wrote the theme music to the movie Benji. They got to go to the Oscars and they actually did win the Golden Globe. <gasps> wow. You're like a star. W- which Benji? The original Benji, 1974. How many Benjis are there? I'm well, there was There's like son, of, son of Benji, The Revenge of Benji. Benji Returns. Benji Off the Leash. Benji Gun Wild. Benji the Hunted was the one I enjoyed. I, Benji mom, goes to jail. My mom wouldn't let me watch Benji Gone Wild. For the love of Benji. Is that when Benji went on spring break? Benji's very own Christmas. Benji Part Benji. Deux. <laughs> <laughs> Benji and Hooch. Oh wait, that was a different movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great news, Jeff. I didn't know you came from such. I mean, I knew you were talented. I didn't know you came from such talent. That explains a lot. B- Benji takes a dive at Marineland. Wow. Yeah, I get really specific. That's um, when I think the franchise kind of fell. Benji apart. at Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> no. Oh, Heavenly Dog, co-starring Chevy Chase. <laughs> Benji, Benji scoots on the carpet, and you take him to the vet. That was my favorite. So this dog gets lost. Dog gets lost. And the lady says, hey, what better way to find him than putting out a lost and found on the lost and found animals of Vermont Facebook page. And bada boom, bada bing. It was shared to more than 10,000 times. And then they... We're happy to get a report that uh, Malaki was found in a shelter in Illinois. 
She said on Facebook that uh, that cute little puppy of hers has now been microchipped <laughs> and spayed and neutered. <laughs> exactly. The dog, 962 miles away. Now, I'm pretty sure the dog did not walk. No, he probably caught a ride somewhere. I bet he stole a car. That was another one. Benji steals a car. Benji goes to Vegas. Ah, Benji goes to Vegas. Benji's first day of school. Uh, Benji binges. Binging Benji. That was a good one. Just how they got, how he went to rehab and got better. It was a heartwarming story. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a heartwarming story. Heartwarming? Yeah. Wow. Right. Good times. See, these are the stories that you don't get on the other radio shows. You might. Doubt it. Really? Who would have just spent three minutes on Benji? Nobody. (laughs) Who else is related to Yule and Betty Box? Right. Let's get that clear, by the way. Juke, are you related to Juke? Because Juke seems to predate the the your aunt your great aunt and uncle. I'm not re- I'm not related to Juke, but I'm related to Pandora. Mm. Don't open that one. <sighs> Coming up next, when strangers meet, how people you don't know can transform you. Our next guest is going to tell us why we need to introduce ourselves to everyone. Terry, listen up. We'll, we'll listen. We'll, we'll see what, what, what this is all about. Just that person sure. standing in the elevator, you might introduce yourself. You have no idea how they could change your life. Power. It just feels awkward. Sure. Well, that, that, that's, that's, that's probably part of the story, though. You won't want to miss it. Strangers, pay attention. They're not all bad. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we encounter strangers everywhere we go, whether it's at an event, the grocery store, or just walking down the street. You know, there's a stranger, somebody we've never met before. Many people will just ignore those that are outside of their circle. But our next guest says you should find a way to introduce yourself. Keo Stark is the author of the new book, When Strangers Meet, how people you don't know can transform you. She's here today to talk us through her philosophy of uh, meeting strangers. Kia, th- Kia, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. What a, what an interesting um, theory, uh, I guess, hypothesis mm-hmm. you have going on here. You've you are you are you an extrovert? Mostly, yeah. I'm you know, I definitely still need a little time to myself, but yeah, yeah. I do enjoy conversation. Cuz when I was reading this, I'm thinking, man, uh, cuz there's sometimes I I will make comments to a, a lot of people I don't know just because it's strange being in an elevator with another human being and not identifying, but um there's other times I just want to be left alone. So talk to us about your philosophy and your theory on why we need to reach out and meet more people, more strangers. Sure. Um, So I think there are kind of two different sets of reasons. The first set of reasons is very emotional um, about feeling connected. And the other is the more kind of political openness um, that we really need more of in the world. And talking to strangers is one way to build that yourself. And then if enough people do it to incrementally increase 
our general uh, level of tolerance in our society, tolerance hmm. and understanding. What, when did you start this? What, what started the, the interest into this relationship with, with those around us? Well, it's funny. I grew up in a family where pretty much everyone talked to strangers, and it, it was just what you do. You're friendly to strangers. You get into conversations. You look people in the eye. You say hello. That was kind of our conventional behavior. And I graduated from high school when I first moved away from my family. I lived in the South. I went to college in the South. And then I moved back north and realized that that this was – not how everybody lived their lives <laughs> and that I was probably in the minority a little bit yeah. um, in terms of my openness and willingness and interest in talking to strangers. That was a bit of a long, slow realization, but once it really crystallized, I immediately became fascinated with like, what did this mean to me and why don't people do it and where do they and where don't they and what makes people uncomfortable with it. Um, so then I started to really both think concretely about it and do a lot of research and start asking people kind of annoyingly constantly about <laughs> their own experiences. Well, I mean, it, it's got to begin with stranger danger, right? Like all of a sudden yeah. we were trained and, and especially, I mean, my kids um, grew up at a time where you know, people were getting kidnapped, and uh, I mean, I guess people have always been being kidnapped, but the news about kidnapping victims, and um, anyway, so this this fear of strangers, is it a fear that drives us to not want to interact? Um, what is it that keeps us from just seeing everyone as a fellow traveler? Well, I think fear is a really substantial um, part of it. I mean, there are lots of, you know, uh, momentary reasons why you might not talk to strangers when you're walking down the street. You're busy, you're grumpy, you're shy. But I think fear is a really significant factor in the way we avoid each other. And I, you know, I personally in my household wasn't brought up with the idea of stranger danger, but everyone around me was. Mm. And I think it's a really damaging idea. I think it's important, incredibly important to teach our children how to deal with people they don't know, including not going anywhere with them, um, you know, not responding to adults who are asking you for help, um, not eating food a stranger gives you. Those are all really important, but categorically writing off don't talk to anyone you don't know is, is, has really hurt us. And you're right that the media at a certain point really latched onto these stories about kidnappings and abuse and the fact is and always has been that kids mostly get abducted by people they know, people mm. who are familiar to them. Yeah. Most stranger-on-stranger -stranger violence, um, sorry, most violence that happens is between people who know each other. Stranger-on-stranger -stranger violence is almost exclusively associated with robbery and it's a really small percentage of it. So what I have started to really think about is, you know, why why is it so upsetting that it becomes, you know, obsessively covered in the media and talked about? And I think one of the reasons is it just goes against our idea of how the world should work. You, you know, it's so random when a stranger hurts a stranger or kidnaps a stranger. 
the world shouldn't work that way. You should be able to protect yourself. And this kind of randomness just really upsets us hmm. and puts a focus on those kinds of stories. And to uh, what I really hope is that we can start to back up from that and keep our kids safe without alienating them completely from anyone who doesn't they don't know or who looks unfamiliar from them, who looks different than they do. I, I mean, that's part of it, too, I guess, is that um, it's how we define stranger, right? Because exactly. the, even the word stranger, it's just they're strange. It's there's something ominous about it. Yeah. That I mean, yeah. but in reality, like you're saying, the majority, the vast majority of humans w- would help you in an instant to, you know, if you were hurting or needed something. Um, yeah. And yet we immediately have this kind of this averse reaction. Well, one funny thing is that when you actually ask people to define stranger, you get an incredibly wide range of answers. And I think that's an important thing for everybody to think about. How do you define stranger for yourself? Is it someone you've never met? Is it someone whose name you don't know? Is it someone you've never seen before? Is it someone who doesn't share your context? Is it someone who doesn't look enough like you? Um, is it just anyone who is unfamiliar and feels threatening? Like if somebody who's unfamiliar but doesn't feel threatening isn't a stranger. Um, all of those things are important for us to think about. And when somebody tells me that they think talking to strangers is a bad idea or scary or dangerous, I I ask them questions because you can't ever change anyone's mind by telling them things. Right. So I ask them you know, why do you think it's a bad idea? Who do you think is a stranger? When do you first remember thinking about it that way? What have your personal experiences been? Um, To try to understand it, because if you understand somebody's perspective a little more, you can really discuss it with them. And sometimes for somebody to articulate why they think things already changes their own mind. Mm -hmm. I love the idea, too, that you ask the question. Um, Talk about – you have a great story, and I don't know if this was the moment that you knew, okay, I got to get into the stranger thing. Um, when you were on the streets, was it New York, of New York, and a man just standing on the corner made a comment to you. Talk, tell us that story and, and how sure. that started this. Sure. This is such a great sort of crystalline moment, and it's actually not the you know epiphany sort of moment, mm-hmm. um, but – it's a good stand-in for that. Yeah, um, it'll so, do. It'll do. So I was standing on the corner, and uh, in New York, a lot of people are in such a hurry that they stand in the street waiting to cross it rather than on the sidewalk. Right. As if that really, like, Gives you know, a second is going to mean something. Right. And I was doing that, and I was standing on top of a storm drain, Um so I'm standing next to this man. He's he's an older man. He's wearing a long overcoat. He's got a, a hat on, even though it's not freezing out. Um, he just has this demeanor. He looks like a character from a movie. Hmm. And so it's already slightly surreal. And then he turns to me and he points to the sewer grate and he says, don't stand there. You might disappear. Hmm. Uh, that's the weirder thing anyone said to me this year. <laughs> but okay. Um, I step back and he said, good so gently, good, you know, now you're safe, because I might have turned around, you never know, and zoop, you're gone. And I just thought, okay, like, this guy really saw me. He saw my face, he saw my whole 
you know, existence as a person, and he thought I was in danger, and he wanted to save me. So there was this tremendous sense of acknowledgement and this momentary bond between us. And then I crossed the street, and he crossed the street, and we never saw each other again. But that moment was such a strong feeling of connectedness and acknowledgement that it really, um, it, it did really crystallize some of my thinking around this. Well, and isn't that... That's like it seems like one of the most basic human needs is to just be acknowledged as existing. Yeah, I really think so. And to feel seen. I mean, you know, in the city here, uh, you walk around and if you're not really present, then you're not seeing people. You're seeing obstacles in your path. Mm-hmm. Um, and to really like practice it, you know, walk around the block or take your walk from wherever you get out of your car to wherever you're going and really look at everybody. Try to look them in the eye. If they don't look back at you, don't worry about it, but think, okay, I'm seeing all the people around me. That is a really profound gesture to be making and it um, it really affects how you feel and you can see it on people's faces. If you connect with them and say hello, they feel seen. They feel acknowledged. They are a human to you in a way that they wouldn't have been if you didn't see them. Yeah. And tell me, so there's, because uh, I've done this and, and I've been in that moment and where you, you just, I, I guess you're just more present. You're seeing, yeah, you're seeing people as, um, as Martin Buber called it, as, as thou's kind of with a more respectful thou kind of view mm-hmm. instead of an it. A thing. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And um, I guess talk to us about what's the benefit of this? I, I, is it changes us? What? It, how does it change us? Sure. Excuse me. I'm coming down with a cold. Um, I think for me, the idea is that these interactions are moments of intimacy. So we need to feel like we belong somewhere. We need to feel connected to the people around us, the places we're in. And those needs are needs for intimacy. We normally think, okay, intimacy, I need to feel like I belong. I need to feel connected. I need to feel loved. I get that from the people that I'm close to and the people who I talk to about, you know, my very personal feelings. And the thing is, there is another way that you can feel connected and belong, and that is when you connect with a stranger. Just in a fleeting moment, this is somebody you'll never see again, but you have a moment where there is emotional resonance. That is a moment of intimacy, and that sustains us, and it changes us. If you walk through the world feeling that way more, you feel very differently about the world around you and the people you're interacting with it's likely that they do as well. Yeah, I guess you feel like you're not alone. You feel you like you belong to a greater whole. Yeah. Boy, that, I mean, imagine how healing that could be just to not have to fight the the battle of being by yourself and alone. And um, Yeah, and I think it, you know, it gives people a sense of community that they do get elsewhere, um, you know, work, church, synagogue, um, moss. Uh, there's a lot of places where you can get a sense of community and communion and 
for me, you also get it in these interactions mm. and you can increase it. And if you're not somebody who belongs to those kinds of communities, it's even more important. Yeah, you can you can still get it. We'll take a break. More with Keo Stark and her book, When Strangers Meet, How People You Don't Know Can Transform You and uh, really create a sense of community. When we come back, we'll get into how we actually do it. How do we talk to the stranger? How do you start that conversation? Stick with us. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. On uh, the program with us today is Keo Stark. She is the author of the book, When Strangers Meet, How People You Don't Know Can Transform You. And uh, as a journalist, uh, an interactive advertising expert, a researcher, a writer, she's putting it all together to help us understand the power in some of these um, these interactions we have with a stranger, somebody we don't even know, but how it could take us to a different level of of peace, also just a different level of re- resonance in our life with other others that are around us. Uh, Keo, again, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's great talking with you. How do we do it? So you're standing on the corner with somebody. You do you just intentionally try to get their eye contact? Um, what do you do? Well, I do, but uh, but let me back up just a little bit. One of the really wonderful things is we actually all operate by some basic unwritten rules um, about what's okay and how it works. And those rules change from place to place and culture to culture, but the basic mechanics are always the same. So how do you start a conversation? How do you create an opening for connection at all? How do you conduct a conversation? What's okay to talk about and what isn't? Um, what, you know, how you get out of a conversation. And if you start to break it down and really observe people around you and observe yourself, you'll, you'll learn a lot about how it works. There's a, there's a great deal about this in the book. Um, but in terms of, you know, for me as a pretty experienced practitioner of this, I do generally try to look someone in the eye and see if they return that. I often just say hello to people I pass by. I mean, New York is a very pedestrian city, so I walk by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I will say hello when I pass them. Some people ignore me. I, I have to have a little bit of a thick skin for when it doesn't go exactly the way that I want it to. <laughs> yeah. Um, some people are surprised when I say hello to them. You know, some people say hello back. Some people slow down and chat with me for a moment. So one of the great things about doing this as a pedestrian is if it doesn't work out the way you want it to, you can keep going. You're not really imposing on anyone, you know, even if they do respond to you because you just you both keep going. It's not necessarily about provoking a long, deep conversation. It's about these moments with people that you'll never meet again. Yeah, I it's funny because I come from, you know, Utah, Salt Lake City, smallish town or smaller town. And uh I've been to New York many times, and I, I I do this more around my town, but I sometimes feel like New Yorkers just won't tolerate it. They won't 
take it. But do, do you see that they respond? Yeah, you know, it's really funny. Some people say, oh, my gosh, everyone in New York is friendly. And other people say, nobody talks to me in New York. And I have yet to understand why people have such a different experience. Mm. It may have to do with the particular places that you are. Yeah. The more kind of busy and in a hurry and purpose-driven people are in their experiences in public space, the less they talk to each other, the less interested they are, um, the more it's going to be just like, you know, what are you, why are you talking to me? Go away. <laughs> um, if you're in a residential neighborhood, it's a really different feeling. Um, New Yorkers are somewhat resentful of tourists in certain parts of town because tourists are quite reasonably moving slow, looking around them, doing exactly what you should do when you're visiting a new place. And the people who work in that area are just trying to get where they're going in a hurry. So that's like Midtown, where the Empire State Building and Rockefeller Center are, not the best place to try to talk to strangers. Right. <laughs> yeah, you kind of got to know, you know, you got to know what's going on. Um, talk about uh, how it's how it's actually impact you. Have you have you had friendships? Have you made friendships and and connections? What what have you seen happen by just connecting with people more? It's so interesting. I, for me, there's really two different kinds of these interactions. And when I talk about this, when um, everything the book is about has really nothing to do with making friends. It's very much about these moment to moment experiences that are, that enrich you, that, um, you know, increase our ability to understand people and our curiosity about people. In terms of making friends, a lot of the techniques, there's a series of techniques in the book, a lot of those can be used in situations where you're more trying to make friends and that's your goal because the whole goal of any of this, once you've gotten past just saying hello to someone, is to get to something real with them, to not talk about the weather, but to, to ask questions that can lead them to give them an opportunity, to give them space, to give them enough trust to tell you something that's real about themselves, even if it's, for me, I don't ask people what they do for a living. I ask them what they did today. Hmm. That will probably include what they did for a living, but it'll also be very specific to them as a person. So it's not, I work at a call center. It's, well, I talk to people all day um, and help them solve their problems. And, you know, today, wow, this woman was so nice to me. Or today, Somebody got really angry at me, and it was hard to handle, and I'm still thinking about it. You want to give people the opportunity to, to actually tell you something real. Right. And what, what, what have you – anything surprising, anything where someone's opened oh, yeah, up to you? Sorry, I, f- I forgot the second half of your question. That's all right. So one thing that I have noticed is that I have made friends with many more strangers online than I ever have from these brief interactions in person. Hmm. The the brief interactions, unless they're with a neighbor, don't really end up going towards friendships or any, you know, wild benefits to my life. Um, But I've been in online communities for a long time. So, for example, there's a photo-sharing community called Flickr that has been really eclipsed by Instagram. But for, for probably almost a decade, that was where people were sharing photographs. And... I would get into conversations on the comments on my own photos, or if I commented on a photo by a friend, 
their mutual friend might ask me a question. And you would sort of get into these exchanges and get to know the person much better. And then I met people who I had those connections to and were very good friends to this day. I guess because they can always come back to you, right? They they have a place that kind of a placeholder for you. And also, by the time you ever met them in person, you've really gotten to know them pretty well. In this case, let's say you've looked at their photographs, you've had conversations with them, you know some of the things that are meaningful to them, you might know some of the things that bother them, um, but you really understand who they are a little bit more. Mm. And you have the... It's not as easy now. There, there's a lot more contentiousness online, and there's less fluidity with um, having a conversation and exchange with someone you don't know. Right. But when you're in a community online that has that, you really have a chance to slowly over time get to know someone the same way you would in a physical space, hmm. slowly get to know them. What do you think would happen long term as we as we wrap this up if – if everybody could could get better at applying this principle of just connecting, trying to cl- create some of those fleeting, intimate moments, what would what would it do? Well, this is, this may sound a little bit sort of fruity, but sometimes the true things do sound that way. Mm-hmm. I think everybody would be a lot happier on on in a generalized sense. I think that when you go around the world and have or, or, you know, the world meaning your life, and you have nice interactions with people you're passing by, you have a lot of good feeling and sort of fellow feeling, and you come home in a better mood. I also think that you have an opportunity to connect even briefly with people who are different than you. And the more we do that, the more we understand what it's like to be someone who's different, the more we have good feelings about people who are different. And that really generalizes. If you have a good interaction with someone who is quite different from you, you sort of associate that. You generalize it to all the people who you think are like that person. Mm. Um, So we need a lot more of that. Oh, I totally agree. Keo Stark, well done. Uh, Thanks for introducing us to the strangers around us. The name of the book is When Strangers Meet, How People You Don't Know Can Transform You. You can also find out more information about Keo at her website, keostark.com, K-I-O-Stark.com. Interesting, folks. There's a lot of light in everybody on this earth, and uh, if we could tune into it, it might fill up our buckets. We'll be back. Continue the discussion. Uh, We'll be talking reality television up next. Welcome back, friends. You know, whether you like it or not, we have all caught ourselves at one time or another watching what society has uh, deemed as reality TV. There may even be times when we've caught ourselves or our friends talking about these shows after the show is over. So what is it about reality TV that fascinates us so much? Here to talk more about the media phenomenon is our own very own friend and uh, wonderful producer, Caitlin Thomas. Caitlin. So uh, are you a big reality TV fan? Well, yes. This is See, this is kind of what sparked my interest in it. Okay. Last Sunday, 
over the weekend I was watching the Emmys. Okay, yeah. And they brought back this year the category for reality TV competition show. Okay. And they awarded the best like competition See, reality See, that's got to drive the rest of the Emmy people crazy. Right, because it's... It got it, it gets rid of writers, it gets rid of actors, it gets rid of all of these people. Yeah, and I mean they're creating these really good stories, but then I like I started thinking about it, and I was like, that's probably my favorite one. That was my favorite award of the night. Was it really? <laughs> it was because the Voice won. The, did it? Yeah, that's my favorite. It's my favorite reality competition show. You know, so I, that's that's what that's what made me. But then I started thinking, you know, let's talk to Matt. You know, Matt's a doctor. Let's yeah, do some research. Why are we so fascinated? By reality TV. It's obvious. It's it's called um, the – what's his name? Hung. It's the Hung Phenomenon. It's Donald the, Hung. Is it? Uh, uh, William Hung. William <laughs> Hung Phenomenon. He's the guy that was on um, – what, what, which one was it? It was – American uh, Idol. Yeah. And he has a horrible voice. He's not a great singer. Mm-hmm. And right then I realized, oh, I'm better than him. Right. Actually, that's what that's they said. That's the problem. There's the shallowness of yeah, I we found, like it because we're better than some of these people. I found people. this Psychology Today article where they had a obviously a psychologist that was talking about it. And she says, the growing fascination with reality television stems from our desire to fantasize about the prospect of easily acquired fame. Hmm. One, we see seemingly regular people doing regular people things and we think to ourselves that we too are regular people who do regular things. <laughs> we could be famous too. Kind of a big deal. (laughs) Kind of a big deal. But it is. Then we also have this – they talk about a social comparison theory where we might feel worse after watching reality television, citing our less than superhuman ability to find solutions to problems in the time left over. But we also might feel better about ourselves because we say, well, we are more talented than these Mm -hmm. people. You know, like I can do good things too. Yeah. I I mean like I I watched – the Bachelor, uh, I, I, I didn't watch the whole thing. I can never watch an entire show, an entire series. So I watched one episode and I thought, ah, oh, geez, I need to get me some abs. <laughs> then I thought by the end of the show, I don't need abs if I'm going to be as dumb as these guys. You know what? It's I a actually, weird thing. I have a tiny clip of that. Do you? Bachelorette intro. Let's listen to Let's it. Let's do it. Coming up this season on The Bachelorette. <laughs> this honestly is a dream come true. I'm ready to open my heart up again. I'm ready to fall in love. I felt that connection with JoJo right away. <laughs> JoJo. Really JoJo. She was ready find to love find love. love. Ready to find love. She wanted love. And don't we all want to find love? Yeah, but is that how you do it? I mean, probably not, but it works for her. 20 men get she's out of a limousine. En- she's still engaged. That's called looking for love in all the wrong places. Yeah, I think Willie Nelson saying that. I mean... It's just funny to me how we watch these shows. And actually, reality TV is not that old. No. The first reality quote-unquote TV show aired in 1983 on HBO. It was called An American Family Revisited. Huh. It was about the Louds, the Loud family. The series inspired the MTV reality t- television series The Real World. Yeah, right. Did you? I mean, yeah, Real we've World. all seen that. Yeah, that was the first strain, right? And then in 2003, PBS broadcasted the show Lance Loud, A Death in an American Family. Hmm. Visiting the family again at the invitation of Lance before his death. So going back to the HBO broadcast. Oh wow! I, See, I mean, I haven't, I haven't. Yeah, that was that predates you. But <laughs> I, I remember the HBO, the other one. The um, an American Family. No, the other one that. Uh, or the Real World. The Real World. Oh, the MTV. Yeah. Oh, the MTV. Sorry, and then so 
but, but this was the beginning, and really, it, it, back in the day, it made so many people frustrated and angry because these aren't actors. There's no writers that have to write the script. So all of Hollywood was being unemployed. Ability. Right. And you didn't have to pay them as much because the people just wanted fame. Right. Notoriety and or something. And most some... of them, instead of getting, I mean, they get paid a little bit, but they're yeah. getting money in advertisement and sponsors. Yeah. You know, companies that say, hey, especially now with social media, reality TV is huge. Yeah. You know, they say, hey, JoJo, you're famous. Put my sunglasses on and take a photo and put it on your Instagram and you'll get free sunglasses for the rest of your life. <sighs> is there really a JoJo? That's her name. Oh. She was the bachelorette last season, oh. JoJo. Um, it's just crazy. I mean, was we she a even... monkey? <laughs> no. It sure wasn't Jar Jar? Jar Jar. Not Jar Jar Binks, no. Oh, okay. We couldn't stand a whole season of him so talking. So JoJo. Show. But, I mean, reality TV, for heaven's sakes, was the birthplace of our presidential candidate, Donald Trump. Uh, we love reality t- TV so much, we voted in a reality TV star. I know. Don't bring that up. In fact, the Kardashians' fame has stayed relevant uh, because of their show, Keeping uh, Up with the Kardashians. Uh, but, I mean, positive things, too. Numerous stars like David Archuleta, Carrie Underwood, and Kelly Clarkson all, their, all got their beginnings on American Idol. I know, but see, that's – I mean, those are great people. The, I think it's different in music because you have to deliver. Right, well right? – But like Snooki didn't deliver anything no, except – No, she just entertained us. Chaos, she just made disorder, that social comparison disease. Theory. We just felt better about our life because we weren't as bad as – So what it is, we get into it – Jersey Shore. And, yeah. Like there's some shows I can't watch. I can't watch Which the ones? Kardashians. I, I can't, can't watch it. What is it, Matt? What bothers you? First of all, it's I see clients all day. The last thing I need is another client. Is a whole family of clients, <laughs> and yet they reach this level of notoriety and fame. And but is it redeeming? I guess is my right. issue. Does it hmm. do do they do the stories make us better, or is it just more about competition and? Well, that, I mean, I don't know. I mean, my, I love the voice. That's the one that I started Yeah, again, with. I, I like the musical and ones because you got to – even Dancing with the Stars, I get because who doesn't want to see – they're doing performing right. something. But like, the voice is fun because I think the reason it's become so popular is the first real singing show we had was American Idol, which was fun to watch. But we had a lot of kind of negative – We'd point. We made fun of a lot of people, right? We would put people on there that mm-hmm. we could laugh at. Simon Cowell had a reputation yeah. for being a meanie, beating people. The up. voice is a little bit different. They still compete, the judges, but they're not quite as mean. If you want to listen to this clip, I mean, this is kind of what you're getting. You may be wondering how I can help you, uh, but I do have Blake some. Blake I'm wondering how you can help. I too. do have some serious connections in that reggae ska world these days. Blake I like it. To help you with, really? I'm just saying. Yeah. Yes, really. really. Yes. You're gonna do really. that. Here we go. Adam Levine. Adam Levine. <laughs> See, I guess that's the issue is that then – I mean that's a friendly competition, but the person still that is singing has to deliver the goods. That's what's cool about it is it's it's giving some people notoriety. Right. I mean – But others like – Support it, but remember that it's not real. Remember that your life is still good. That's what we're here to talk about. It's not just about other names like Polly D, Jay Wow, Sweetheart, The Situation. Honey yeah. Boo Boo. The Amazing Honey Race. Boo Boo. <laughs> American Ninja Warrior. Okay, we're out. Hour number two is done. We'll be back next hour. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show, hour number three of the program. This is the show where we give you the uh, tools, the information, the skills to live longer, love stronger, have healthier, happier lives. Top of the morning to you. It is a, uh, it's an important day, man. It's a very important day. Today is September 22nd, which means it's White Chocolate Day. A chocolate rain with your neighborhood insurance rates. Chocolate rain. Chocolate rain is the name of this one. Happy living in a gay chocolate rain. <laughs> wow. Made me cross the street the other day. White chocolate was the result of separating dark solids from the rich fat of the bean, known as the cocoa, uh, as cocoa butter. It's just a natural part of the manufacturing process, and it created heaven on earth, white chocolate. Today's the day we celebrate it. In 1930, Nestle invented the Milky Bar. Also, by the way, it's Ice Cream Cone Day. Ice cream, ice cream, vanilla ice cream. When you want ice cream, Matt, do you actually scream for it? I don't. I just uh, nicely step up to the the server and say, I'll have an ice cream cone. Well, that's nice. That's what my mama taught me. No need to scream. Yeah, this song is enough to annoy you. Or me. Would it drive you to eat ice cream? It might drive me in front of an ice cream truck. That took a dark turn. I know it did. Please turn this song off. It's killing me. <sighs> it makes me want to go have white chocolate. If you, if you play this and put in a clown outfit on, I, you're probably what people are hearing is they're seeing clowns all over the country. That's what those clowns need, the ones that have been making appearances all over the country. Yeah. Just to have a boom box and have this song playing. Oh, see, I think that was that's just scary. Today's a really big day. We we can't celebrate all of the all of the things we could celebrate today. Today's also Hobbit Day, Elephant Appreciation Day. Lots of stuff we are celebrating. We chose to go with the sweets. Just because they're sweet. So we will uh we, we've got a lot to talk about. For example, we'll be getting into a discussion with uh uh Dr. Carmen Hara about um relationships. How to turn attraction into a real relationship, you know? So it's kind of for you dating folk. And maybe if you're married and you feel like you're losing the love. Video games? Yeah. Will that do it? No. Really? No. I mean, it might temporarily, but eventually you're going to have to deal with each other. Yeah, there were, there were several things that happened when my wife and I were dating that she was like, yeah, I like these. And then she really didn't like yeah. them. That's called the mate and switch. Yeah, that was... She pretended... And the next thing you know, you're doing dishes. I like sports. She doesn't like sports. She doesn't like sports. Maybe not video games, but you know what works really well is beating your wife at board games just repeatedly. I'm glad you finished the sentence. I was going to say, that was... That was actually scaring me for a minute. I'm like, uh uh-oh. Yeah, yeah. So playing your wife in a board game and winning. All the time. Works. She likes that, huh? My wife won't play me if I dominate. Like we play tennis and I have this really cool little backspin drop shot right mm-hmm. over the net. Really? And I make her run. I mean, hey, so she has knee problems now. <laughs> and then you taunt her afterwards uh-huh. and it just goes over right. so well. You're like, hey, how's that ACL feeling it's now? Right. Yeah, <laughs> did you feel the burn? Who's the one that wanted to get out here? I wanted to just stay home and watch Netflix. Look who's now complaining. And then she drives away. That's kind of mean. It is. And then I've got to get a ride home. It's all right. You're, you're known. 
She doesn't even know that I'm a relationship expert. Anyway, we'll talk to uh, Dr. Carmen Hara about that. And also uh, our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show today. Plus the hero of the day. A lot to get to. But first, Sadie Nielsen in the headlines. Sadie? One person was fatally shot Wednesday during the second night of protests in Charlotte, North Carolina. Officials say the shooting was civilian on civilian, and several officers and protesters have also sustained minor injuries. The demonstrators are protesting the fatal involved officer shooting of Keith Scott, a 43-year-old black man, on Tuesday. The Charlotte Observer reports the protest started peacefully but turned chaotic with a small group of protesters kicking cars and throwing bottles and police officers firing tear gas into the crowd. After months, of, after months spent attempting to discredit Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton's campaign is reportedly now trying to reestablish its own candidate as the center of its message. As Election Day approaches, voters are, aren't going to be able to rattle off her bullet points, Democratic strategist says. While Clinton has maintained a slight lead in polls, over half the country still views her as unfavorably, according to the Real Clear Politics polling average. Openings for manufacturing jobs have averaged 353,000 a month this year, up from 311,000 a month last year, the Wall Street Journal reports. That's the highest level in 15 years. Many employers say they're having a difficult time finding workers with the skills needed to find today's increasingly technology-focused manufacturing roles. And finally... Mm -hmm. A stolen dinosaur statue has been missing for two years, has been found at the top of a mountain alongside with a touching note. Oh, boy. The statue was discovered by Madison Both and her friend as they climbed to the top of Mount Coulomb in Queensland yesterday morning. As they approached the dinosaur, it had a note that said, Return me to my big, to big pineapple to my owner. I escaped and I want to go home. I have seen and been through some hard times and I just really want to go home. So the girls Googled Big Pineapple and found the dinosaur had been stolen from a festival in 2014 and was never found. And, of course, the owner was very happy that the dinosaur friend was It's like when people steal the garden gnome and then take pictures on the trip and then bring it back. Yeah, except this was a very large dinosaur. It probably was like seven feet long. Was it a brontosaurus? Um, No, it was a, what's the one with the really long neck? Is that a brontosaurus? Isn't that a brontosaurus? Oh, yes. I don't then know. It was a I don't know my dinosaurs. Yeah, just I, go with brontosaurus. It was not a T-Rex. Okay, good. He, Brachiosaurus. So he, was it a brachiosaurus? Tracheosaurus. Is that? Uh, Maybe we should have a quiz on dinosaurs later this week. <laughs> Let's, we, we definitely Because that's something we really need to know. Yeah. Boy, who would kidnap a poor little dinosaur and then abandon it? Yeah. It sounds on sad. On a mountaintop. How did they even get it up there? Uh, I'm going with teenagers. For $500, Alex? Determined ding, teenagers. Ding, ding. Thank you, Sadie. Again, we've found another lost being. I don't know what we call this. Uh, statue. There you go. Hmm. I'm telling you, kids. It's just, it's just trickery. It's, this is what, this is what the, that young generation does. They just try to complicate your life. Now I got to go get the dinosaur. Kids on the top of a mountain. It's funny that nobody went up that mountain for two years. Apparently, hmm. okay. Good times. Hey, um, crazy news story we got to we got to talk about here. An old man suddenly learns to play the piano after suffering a stroke. A British uh, man retired. 
has suddenly become able to play the piano after surviving a stroke. A stroke. Roy Calloway, 78, had never been able to play any musical instrument until he was recovering from a stroke. That is so cool. He was amazed when he discovered his new talent of being able to tinkle the ivories. Roy said, I've played and I couldn't believe it. I just It just came out naturally. I was in shock. Roy, who lives in South Wales, had the latest uh, had a latest stroke after a series of heart problems. I guess he's had many strokes. He said, I had a heart bypass around 20 years ago, and ever since I've had heart uh, problems, and with that, countless strokes. But this was the first time anything was noticeably different afterwards. I mean, you have a stroke, and the next thing you know, you're just playing the entertainer. Hey, kids. But you know what? He's the talk of the town now. He is big time. I don't know if he lives in a senior living center, but if you can tickle, or what do you call it? Tinkle the ivories. Tickle. Let's go I think he said tinkle. Maybe not. You can tickle the ivories. Guess what? You've got a career. That's pretty cool. Some other things that you might, I mean, wouldn't it be great if you didn't wake up playing the piano, knowing how to play the piano, but what if you just learned to make your bed? After the stroke. Pick up your shoes. Yeah. What if he got up and, like, figured out how to split the atom? Program a VCR. (laughs) He's fluent in Swedish. How cool. You know, so strokes maybe aren't that bad. For one hundredth of one percent. Parallel park. (laughs) I've seen some people that need to have a good uh, brain problem in order to parallel park. That's cool. Congratulations to him. You got to love that. Isn't the mind just such a crazy thing? You think all of a sudden you're done. You had a stroke. I've, and I was, when I was an EMT, we would arrive on scene after someone had had a stroke, and it's devastating. It's a horrible thing, except for this guy. All of a sudden he's... He's playing an instrument. How on earth that can happen? I have no idea. Um, any news, Terry? Anything we've got to cover as we uh, before we get to our next guest? News out. News out of North Korea. As pardon, I pardon? figure out my mic here. Really? North Korea news, which usually the news comes out of South Korea about North Korea. If that makes any sense. Um, so all of North Korea's websites. It would just take a few minutes for you to pursue the entirety of the North Korean web. Apparently, it consists, uh, the main domain name system uh, was reportedly misconfigured on Monday, and a security engineer for Uber took notice, looked in there, and saw that uh, on the .kp, which we have .com, there's yeah, yeah. .us, .ca for yeah. Canada, .kp apparently is North Korea, and it turns out North Korea has just 28 domain names, including the site for state-owned Air Cairo, which I think is their airline, and uh, Kim Sung University, and what looks to be a social networking site called Friend. Yeah. This is all off a website called Motherboard. To put that into perspective, there are an estimated 1 billion websites worldwide and more than 140 million with .com and .net domains. Wow. Right? So North Korea essentially has 28 websites on their Internet. <laughs> Can well, I mean? But I guess that's that's one thing. They only have twenty. I mean, some some have billions. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's their Wi-Fi coverage? 
Very limited. <laughs> so it says the sites are one hosting recipes, another about film, and a possible copy of Yahoo. They're very basic and slow to load because mm-hmm. you know. But if you have the patience and are curious about what Kim Jong Un is up to, the English version of a website for a newspaper, uh, their main newspaper in North Korea, can keep you up to date. Hmm. If you want to read, if that. you wanted to know what Kim Jong Un is doing, headlines include Kim Jong Un visits a fruit farm. And Kim Jong-un guides fire drill of ballistic rockets. So, you know. Oh, I think oh. we're dialing into it. Is he it right dialing now? up? Here we yeah. go. You have mail. <laughs> now, 20. 28. Boy. 28 websites. Wow. I mean, really, I wonder when was the last time we had 28 websites on the Internet? I don't. Probably never, because probably the initial when internet, was, which was just between universities and the yeah, military, was probably twenty-eight sites at immediately. Least. Yeah, we need to ask Al Gore. He knows he invented That's it. Right. In other news, Nike is yeah. introducing on November twenty-eighth their self-lacing sneakers that are modeled after Marty McFly's sneakers from Back to the Future Two. How cool is this? So you put your foot in, and then the the shoe will then compress around your foot. Well. And then it, – but it, it'll be done by battery? Uh, I'm trying to see here. I don't or do you have to says. use your own force somehow? No, because the way it works – they're called Hyper Adapt 1.0 will be available for experience and purchase on November 28th. It's a big deal. Here's sound. Power laces. All right. Just uh, power laces. Just power laces. Yeah. I wonder if that helps you actually jump. Or run faster. Always. That's how the shoe works. Huh. It says the pricing is still unknown, but expected at a, quote, high price tag at select locations around the country. One million dollars. It says you can check out the full story from uh, Wired for more detailed look at the sneakers. Uh, the key points, each shoe has an internal cable system made from a fishing line and a pressure sensor in the sole. When you put your foot in, the cables tighten based on an algorithmic pressure equation. Well, could they not also loosen? So you're running, and then the next thing you know, your shoe's off. And the fit can be adjusted throughout the day with a pair of buttons near the tongue. So, huh. you know, when your feet yeah. swell later on in the afternoon. Yeah. when you got to put your feet up. There's you, LEDs that light up the heels when oh, the shoes are tightening. And it's also, when it's on low battery, apparently you plug these things in. Oh, wow. It takes three hours for a full charge, and each charge lasts about two weeks. So this is the first pair of smart shoes then? Allegedly. Or green shoes. Okay. We'll I have, have to see. Uh, should we make a wager? Okay. I'll, I'm going to go... There's a clip-on charger, by the way. Go ahead. Even though we don't wager, I'm going to go $10 says shoe fire within three weeks. You lose! <laughs> of the Good launch day, of the... sir! It's also worth noting that the thick nylon laces you see on the top of the sneaker are just visual. They tighten, but that's not what's keeping the foot, the shoe on your foot is what it says. Yeah. Okay. So, there you go. Good to know. Hey, way to go, Nike. Way to take an invention from the 80s and make it happen. Mm, or even, yeah. <sighs> what's happening to us? Well, when we come back, how to turn attraction into the real relationship you want. Interesting stuff from a relationship expert. Stick with us. Matt Townsend Show, helping you love stronger. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show as we're trying to get 
our uh, our guest on the line um, to talk about how to turn attraction into a real, real relationship. I have been thinking a lot about um, communication and some of our arguments that we have in life. You know, for example, uh, everybody, you've probably had this relationship somewhere with your spouse. For example, you hear it from your kids all the time. I just I just want it to be fair. How come I'm the one, you know, that's always doing the cleaning? How come I always have to make dinner? You ever felt angry at your spouse because they don't pull their fair share? They don't do the cleaning around the house? Or uh, have you ever been frustrated, you know, or heard your kids say, how come so-and-so gets to always go do that, but we never get to? So fairness is is an argument you tend to hear in a relationship. And one of the things uh, that I wanted to figure out is what drives some of our most common arguments? And the fairness argument is one that we hear quite a bit. Uh, There's some research that came out in 2016 that was cited by Susan Fisk, who's a a Princeton professor. And she found that um, flyers on an airline, right, who were reminded of social inequality were more likely to get angry and start air rage incidents. For example, and, and they believe it's because they have to walk through first class. So when... When people have to walk through the first-class cabin on an airplane to get back to their coach cabin where they are all just, you know, creased in there and shoved in these these tight seats, it, it tends to make people angry. And so she wanted to research that. What is it about that, that that's such a problem? And the problem is simply – it's the contrast. The incidence comes from those in economy class who had to walk through the first class cabin and realize what they weren't getting. They found that those that were in economy class were nearly four times more um, likely to have a rage, an air rage incident if, if the airplane has a first class cabin. If the air, aircraft doesn't have a first class cabin, then um, it, it's not a problem. They, they have a lot fewer incidences of, of rage. So I wondered if that's not one of the drivers of our, our arguments in our marriage about what's fair. If all of a sudden you feel deeply that your spouse is, uh, is, is getting a better deal, you probably are going to have more rage around the fairness issue. So instead of maybe spending hours trying to argue about what's fair – just simply notice that no one likes to be reminded that someone's getting a better deal and instead use your time talking about how we can equalize the outcome, right? How we can equalize and make it a fair situation for both of us. Don't spend the time arguing about fairness. Instead, argue about how we can make it more balanced. Make sense? The argument of fairness is pretty natural, apparently, to all of us. Crazy stuff. We will take a break. That's your Coach's Corner, by the way. And when we come back, we do have our guest on the line. We're going to be talking about how to turn attraction into a real relationship. Stick with us. Townsend Show. 
You know, um, relationships, they're not as easy as we kind of think they should be. In fact, you've heard about Brad and Angelina. They're divorcing now. And these icons in our world today, you know, it's hard to keep relationships working. So think about it. When was the last time you you had to really be proficient at knowing how to take a relationship from a dating stage or an infatuation stage to the the real deal. We haven't had to do it forever. And uh, those that do do it more regularly, those that are single and are in the dating mode, they may not know how to take some uh, some relationships from the attraction stage into a real relationship. So we've asked a true blue expert, Dr. Carmen Hara, to, uh, to join us. She's an internationally acclaimed psychologist and relationship expert. And she basically says, don't look at budding relationships as temporary flings because you will turn it into that. A healthy human bond doesn't come with an expiration date, but it, uh, it does come with a predestined reason. It was no coincidence that you met this person. So maybe start there, trying to figure out what this person is here to teach you. And Dr. Carmen Hara, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Now, so you're saying when somebody, when you're dating somebody, instead of just really quickly trying to see if the fling will work, you're saying instead we should be asking a question about what this person, why was this person brought into your life? Why are they, what are they here to teach you? Yeah, exactly. You have to see beyond the attraction. You have to see beyond the reason, beyond the season. And you have to pick that authenticity over the attraction. Now, a lot of people listening will say, well, if I don't have chemistry to the person, I will not go for that relationship. I need to have chemistry. But that's not good enough, you know, Um, because a, a person comes at the very beginning very tempting, and there's that chemistry that, you know, is so uh, important. But then, you know, uh, a month later, a year later, you don't even know why you got involved with the person mm. because you realize, you know, that um, you, you're missing the foundation. And the relationship, as you said, it is going to turn into a simple affair or just a fling and it's going to go nowhere. Mm. So how important it is, you know, to, to realize um, who the person really is and if you can really envision a future with that person, and there's a lot of tips that we can give your listeners in order to acknowledge this is the way to actually turn a, a simple attraction into a real relationship, you know, and how to pick actually authenticity over the, the chemistry and the physical attraction. Mm, let's do it. What, what, when you say authenticity in an authentic relationship, just define for us what you mean by that. Authenticity, authenticity versus attraction. Authenticity is a person, you know what I mean, who's beaming with being real, you know, that just the momentary excitement. Yeah. Uh, you know, a person who has qualities as a human being, because it's important for you to know that you're getting involved with somebody who has uh, qualities, and you know their character. You don't want to be involved with somebody who's a narcissist. Uh, look at what's happening even in the election today. You know, somebody mm-hmm. married three, four times. Or look at somebody who's disrespectful or not generous. You don't want to be involved with somebody that just looks good. He's handsome. He makes money. But as I said, he's a bullet. He's a narcissist. So then your your life will turn into a living hell. You don't want that. So um you need to be with somebody who is a good person and has all the qualities of somebody who is capable of genuine and authentic love. 
Because if you tra- if you chase the chemistry, the chemistry you're saying may keep you in that relationship, even though it's not someone you want, it's not someone that you revere, and they're not healthy for you. Exactly. And that chemistry, you know, it's very uh, important, and, you know, it, it keeps two people together, but it fades in times, you know, and it's not the foundation. It's like you cannot build a house without a foundation. Mm, the that's chemistry good. is is the superficial, that, that facade that somebody has. So in order to be aware, you know, of who the person is, you have to look at the warning signs. A lot of people ignore the red flags uh, from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, so you need what? to be aware of the red flags that a person is going to give you that determines their characters. What are and some of those flags? To, yeah, the red flags, is like you see somebody... It, okay, you go to dinner and he makes you pay, or he's uh, he's disrespectful to you in so many ways. He doesn't uh, return your calls. He has issues with other people. He, uh, you, you have to watch him. You know, you have to be an observer. Don't let your own feelings dictate. You know, um, don't let your own emotions, uh, you know, p- p- play the whole role here. Huh. Think, think with a logical mind and. Detach from your feelings and observe that person in the complexity of what this person is all about by seeing in which way that person engaged with other people, with her or his own family, um, how he handles all kinds of situations. So to get to know him in every single word, you know, in everything that defines him. Hmm. So uh, that's very important. And then the other thing, you know what, if you don't do your inner work, if you don't work on yourself in detaching from previous relationships, if you don't eradicate all your negative emotions, like you come in a, in a relationship with all the memories of what has happened to you before, you can never bring balance and harmony with somebody else. Hmm. Because a relationship at the end is a reflection of your own issues. So that's why it's so important. No person comes into your life or no, just, just to come into your life. No person is an accident. There's a much bigger reason that you meet somebody. So you have to go beyond the reason, and you have to know, why did I bring this person? Because we like magnets, you know? We're talking about attraction, so we do attract people. Many times, people that we attract are just a reflection of our own weaknesses, insecurities, past memories, previous bad relationships. So (laughs) I have a lot of people coming to me and say, well, doctor, why am I bringing the same abuser, the same alcoholic? The same guy was going to cheat on me. So I keep on marrying uh, three, four, five times, and it, it doesn't stop. Why am I doing this? There's something within me that I was never able to heal, that was never able to, to figure it out, you know? And so, in other words, if you really want a good relationship, the first step, you work on your own self. You perform your inner work, uh, what it is within you that you really need, you know, to heal. So a person can actually be the, the best way to heal yourself. So actually, you know, the word uh, relationship comes from the Latin relatio, which means to heal, to restore. So a person coming into our life is supposed to make us feel better. It's supposed to empower us. It's supposed to heal. Uh, and in many cases, is absolutely doing the opposite. Yeah. So you don't want to be in a dysfunctional relationship. You don't want to be, you know, um, uh, harming yourself indirectly. You want to move forward and be a relationship like 
evolution, progress, not going backward in your life. So that pre-work uh, is is really important because a lot of our future relationships are going to be determined by how we ended the last one and how what we learned, how we grow, instead of just kind of reacting and picking it up and doing the same thing over exactly. and over. Exactly. So if you harbor resentment, anger, bitterness, and all those feelings towards your partner, they might be actually coming from your subconscious mind, what all the memories are. So if you never had closure to your former relationship, don't expect the next one to be perfect hmm. or to fix uh, all of a sudden something that hasn't never been resolved or healed previously. So how important it is to understand where you stand, to understand your own needs. If you don't know your needs, you know what I mean? Then you're not going to know where you're going. You're not right. going to know how to communicate. You That's need to so know true. what do you really want. Do you really have a part, want a partner? Do you really have a family, or do you really want to have fun, or you have some? You you just want something that is in between the two of them. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's so important, you know, to understand if you really want a long lasting relationship, or you just want to start a fling. You know, because I mean, yeah, you want. I guess I guess the powerful thing about that is if you know what you want. It it just seems like kind of when I'm driving, if I know where I want to go, it increases the likelihood that I'll get what I want. If I don't have a clue where I'm going or what I want, I can just drive aimlessly. But then, you know, I find I just wasted a lot of time, a lot of money, resources. So I, I, how do we do this? Is this something where we need to go talk to someone, Carmen? Because it seems like a lot of times the only way I can evaluate my thinking is with my own thinking. And sometimes my own thinking is clogged. Well, exactly. And that's why I think the whole... Uh... Uh, you know, uh, work of therapy is so relevant in the world today because you express yourself and you have somebody, you know, to show you your wrong thinking. Now, interestingly enough, you know, the biggest statement of all time is what you think you become. Your thinking translates into your action and into the way you speak and into the reality of the physical world that you are living in. So if you your thinking is wrong and you're not aware of it, you will continue to perpetuate that kind of a thinking that will be reflected in the relationship, not only with your partner, with anybody else, you know. So you look at people around you that they don't get along with anybody or they have problems with, with, with the world around. It's mm. because of their way, you know, they harbor those, those bad feelings that they don't know how to project the right thinking. So that's why going to somebody who's a brilliant therapist who can guide you and shift, you know, you want to change your future, change your thinking, you know, change the way you think about relationship, change the way you project yourself, change the way you think about you and the people around you, because the whole world and especially relationship are reflection of you. So if you had a bad problem in your childhood and your mother, your father uh, never got you and you're bullied in school or you have issues with being emotionally abused, sexually abused and all those things, you know what I mean? Those are within you. If you know how, don't know how to release them and heal them and delete them like a file in the computer, you will continuously bring them up into your future and continue to be disappointed about your emotional life. You are so right, Carmen. Thank you again and thank you so much for the insight. I mean, it, it is. It's about choice. It's about agency. It's about 
karma in a way. How you handle it today will determine how you'll have to handle your life tomorrow. Let's get a hold of it today. You can get more information from Carmen at uh, CarmenHara.com. Interesting insight there and other tools and information for you. We will take a break, come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation and see what's coming up on their show. Stick with us. Welcome back. That's the awesome song. Everything is awesome when you live in a team. And uh, we're going to shoot it down to two of our awesome team members. Side by side, you and I, Spencer and Jerem, the Matt Townsend Show, bonding forever. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Yo. If we were a football team, what position would each of us play in relation to our family and team at BYU Radio and BYU TV? Okay, that's a great question. I'm going to go with, um, I would play tight end. <laughs> nice. I, I did okay. tight end. Okay. Okay, um, you guys. Do you clearly be the kicker. You're, the, <laughs> you're clearly yes, the kicker. and I would be on special teams. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> yeah. I think you would be the quarterback, Spence. And, Jerem, I think you'd be the, the, the lead receiver. I'd be a receiver. You would. Yeah. You'd be the receiver. Spencer, Spencer could play whatever position we need him to play. You would be the receiver known for targeting, Jerem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a very rare commodity. Excellence in the details. Yeah. Precision route runner. I just feel I like I'd be a, a great tight end because I like the short pass. I like to block. And I'm just ripped. That's right, baby. No, actually, I just ripped my pants right there. <laughs> So did you guys end. did you guys notice <laughs> did you notice our our Lego song? How could we not? We're that's it. We're a team. I can see it brought the spirit out. Hey you guys, uh today is white chocolate day. By the way, what they do call me on the field. White chocolate. Oh, Jason Williams. Uh-huh. It's ice cream cone day. Mm-hmm. It's also Hobbit Day mm-hmm. and Elephant Appreciation Day. Is there a day that has nothing? Because I want to celebrate yeah, that. We day. did. We had that. It's the celebrate nothing day. Yay! <laughs> it was really a hard day because we didn't have much to talk about. Just kind of. Oh, I've got a story. I've got to ask you about. Did you hear about the German goalie that had forty-three goals scored on him? No. No. What happened? In one game. In the, one game. In one game while playing for the German club SV Vonderort Koyotek. He allowed 43 goals in the game, 35 in the first half. What in the world? Against PSV Oberhausen. Things got out of hand uh, to the point that uh, Oberhausen removed three of its players to try to even out the game. Uh, but it didn't work. They still lost. The other team lost 43-0, to zero, which is bad in and of itself, except the goalie was then arrested a couple days later. Uh-oh. Police officers, armed officers came in, escorted him out of off of the field, and arrested him, and they're not telling anybody why they arrested him. Was he inebriated when he nope. was playing goalkeeper? Nope. They don't know. Nobody knows. <laughs> but the police aren't going to let him on the field, and he is now in jail. Wow. Yeah. So, A, uh, should police be able to arrest people that blow it 43 to 0? <laughs> they're just digging up something. They're so angry with him. They're like, just find something on him so we can arrest <laughs> yeah, him. Just get him out of there. <laughs> parallel <laughs> the park. Find something. And 
At what point do you? I mean, how 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 many players can you pull off the field before you know it's like two on nine or whatever the numbers are, and it's just embarrassing. Yeah. Can you That'd forfeit like? If- I don't know in the pros. Do they have like a mercy rule? Well, I know in in college football. So Clemson played uh, a, a small school, and they agreed to uh, like twelve minute quarters in the second half on Saturday. Why? No, why? Because they were blowing them out. But oh. they didn't agree on running clock. There's some stipulations there. You can you could agree to shorten the quarters and do a running clock. Well, why are they? Why is Clemson playing such a team? That's a great question for Clemson. <laughs> Uh, Jeff, make a note. I want to call Clemson. <laughs> call Maybe Dab- Dabo Sweeney, the head coach, I'm sure would love to join you on your <laughs> yeah, show. I bet you Dabo would love. Dabo, didn't he just get in trouble doing something? Oh, he has been all over the news for stating his opinions. Mm-hmm. Dabo he got in trouble. He was just outspoken. Well, it wasn't in trouble. It just created backlash. Yeah. As everything does in our society now via social media, if you take a stance on something, you will hear about it from the other side. Exactly. Exactly. That's why we take no stands on the show. <laughs> we play it right down the middle all day, every day. We please everyone except management. <laughs> hey, um, guys, you're you're going to do your show still, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, anything, anything big? I, I read in one of the newspapers they were asking, "Is this a must-win sh- game? Is this the must-win game?" Or to or BYU's that, that was it yesterday we were talking about yes that? yes or is it over what what was your conclusion if BYU wants to win eight games I feel like this is a must win it's a mm. tone setter yeah. it's a tone setter if they can go two and two in September and gain some confidence then I think they've got a shot to win eight games but they've got to beat West Virginia some people think this is a must win to get bowl eligible which I think is a bit much but there are those people that are like hey we're already there we're one and two. BYU needs to beat West Virginia, or they might not be in San Diego in the Poinsettia Bowl. I don't. I'm not feeling like it's that dramatic. But hmm. uh, you want to win eight games. I mean, that would be that would be a great season with this schedule. So you know, I'm I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Man. Okay. It's good also, to know. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about what we expect from Taysom Hill. No controversy anymore about who the starter is going to be because the coach has cleared that up and said, "Hey, Taysom Hill's our guy. He will start against West Virginia." We know that. What do we now expect from him against the Mountaineers on Saturday in game number four under scrutiny Hmm. and under the pressure of having to pick things up on the BYU offense because it hasn't been what they want it to be? Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, that's what you get. It's a rebuilding. Come on. Yeah, well, there you go. Also, uh, who was called the tyrant of the paint? on the BYU basketball team by CBS Sports. <laughs> really? Is it a player or a coach? A player. a player. Seriously? Yes. A tyrant. A tyrant in the paint. Ah. <laughs> Does he have like a funny mustache? <laughs> he could if he wanted to, I guess. I guess I he could grow one. Hmm. We'll they, they, uh, some members of the basketball team, including uh, Peyton Dasher, Perik, Mika, and company, were going to grow mustaches, but then they decided... No, we we can't do it. <laughs> it's like the, they like, love the mustache mafia from the baseball yeah, team. Yeah, but I thought you guys are way too visible to have these mustaches, man. Like a baseball team, it like fits right. into that culture. Yeah, yes. it does. does not fit into the basketball yes. team. Well, because you're also out on the field. Those are huge fields. On the court, you can you just see the stash. It's all you see is a stash. Mustaches are really funny. Yeah, <laughs> I wish I could grow one. 
<laughs> Ului Lapoaho was walking around the football offices yesterday after I finished uh, some interviews with players and, and uh, Kalani Satake, and he's got like a legit caterpillar on the top of his <laughs> lip. Was and it he moving? Was, he was getting a serious hard time from Elisa Tuiaki and Jan Jorgensen, a couple of guys on the on the defensive staff, so much so that they said that uh, <laughs> he, all schools have been put on notice for <laughs> Louis Lapoal. Yeah. I mean, like, what if that thing pops off in the middle of the game <laughs> and just lands on someone's arm? Oh. <laughs> oh, I love God. it. I love it. Yeah. Guys, you're going to have a great show. I can feel it. I've, um, I've, I've been sending out some good vibes for your show today. Thank you. So we need it. Thank we do, you. We do need you need it. it. I know you need to go work out, shave, get ready. So uh, peace be with you. Thank you, sir. And uh, I hope we can play that game as a team. Everything is awesome. <laughs> when you're part of a team. That's so true. And you're living. <laughs> yeah. Power Rangers break. Go, go, Power Rangers. Beautiful. Thanks, guys. Knock them dead. That was cool. We are part of the team. Sometimes you forget that. So here's the news, folks. There is a a cow that's now getting um, some special props. A bovine revolution has begun, my friends. A cow in Australia scuffled with a helicopter over the weekend. And the battle didn't end the way you might expect. When an unidentified chopper pilot tried to round up some cows at a cattle station in Cone, Cape York Peninsula in Queensland on Sunday, things didn't go so well. The aftermath was posted in a picture on social media, and uh, the only thing in the picture you see is a burnt-out shell of a helicopter. Apparently, the cow brought the helicopter down... (laughs) It's believed the rails underneath the helicopter got tangled up in the cow's horns, causing the chopper to lose balance. The Queensland Police Service wrote on a website, while the chopper was utterly destroyed, no pun intended, utterly destroyed, the 35-year-old pilot uh, of the uh, helicopter was uninjured, except perhaps for his pride. And the cow? According to Brisbane Times, the cow is now a stake. No, the cow was just fine. Can you believe the cow? The cow goes back to all of his little cow friends. <laughs> Take that. It's nighttime in Queensland. The cows are quiet. That's a cool cow. That is one tough cookie. That's all i got to say about that. Right. You're not liking this story, Jeff. It's a cow that took down a helicopter. Don't mess. Sounds like another movie trailer. I have a feeling it's going to make that into a movie. Hollywood's so desperate for movies today that that's just a wonderful storyline. Remember, you can always get us on iTunes, on Stitcher. If you're looking for any old shows, past shows, you can Google us. If you just look up The Matt Townsend Show, and you can pick any topic. The Matt Townsend Show and um, Anxiety. And it'll bring up shows that you can just go download and listen to. What is Stitcher? Isn't that like Stitcher? a coach from from boxing? Somebody that yeah. mends Stitcher. you back together? 
He got me with the right jab. Stitcher is a it's a program for Android phones to aggregate their um, podcasts. And that's where mm-hmm. they can download their podcast. So it's on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're on TuneIn. We are on BYURadio.org. You can find us. You can go download the BYU Radio app. We're everywhere. So we want to remind you of that. Plus, you can find us on um, Facebook. Look up my the Matt Townsend Facebook page. Um, and we can also do you know a lot of other – I mean we're on a lot of other social media. At Dr. Matt Show, we're everywhere. So I wanted you to know that before we wrap it up with our final story. The final story is a hero story, of course. And the story is about a friendship that was forged in a Memphis parking lot that has now led to $300,000 and a new life for struggling teen and his mom. Listen to this. It's such a great story. Uh, it's so awesome. Chauncey Jones said, My life has been completely changed, the 16-year-old said. On the evening of June 9th, Chauncey went to a Kroger's grocery store hoping to get food donations in exchange for helping customers with their grocery bags in the parking lot. It's something I do quite a bit, he says. I try to get whatever odd jobs I can. That night, he met Matt White, 30, a Memphis uh, singer and songwriter who was touched by the teen's plight Matt bought Chauncey and his mother's groceries and toiletries and offered Chauncey a ride home. Matt stunned to find no food in the Jones' refrigerator and no furniture in the apartment other than a sofa. There were some blankets on the floor, though, in in the bedrooms, along with a few lamps. So Matt wrote about Chauncey's situation on his Facebook page. The post quickly went viral, and one thing led to another. Guess what? Offers of jobs, food, clothing, dental care, furniture, all came in. Matt had also sent up a, set up a GoFundMe account and raised over $300,000 uh, worth of money for Chauncey and his mother. One encounter in a parking lot leads to the, the true changing of two lives at least, plus the changing of our lives because we just heard the story. So, folks, that's the hero of the day. That is a pretty basic story of how it works. Somebody in need meets somebody that cares and can make a difference Bada boom, bada bing, the next thing you know, lives are changed. Let's do it. We all can do it. Let's be like Matt White. Get out there and change some lives. Find somebody in need and go the extra mile. That's it. That's the show. We'll be back again tomorrow. More ideas, more information to help you lead healthier lives. Until then, take care of each other.